This episode contains the topics of rape, sexual assault, abduction, pedophilia, child abuse, animal cruelty, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Momicide Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kristen. This episode contains the topics of sexual assault, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains the topics of sexual assault, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. This episode mm-hmm. contains yeah, the topics of sexual assault, it's very murder, long. and suicide. The story took place over Listener 10 years, discretion so there's a lot of detail advised. that goes into it, and thankfully, I feel this like this is This episode contains the topics of sexual assault, outcome. murder, so and suicide. there is a happy ending, Listener discretion the story is itself is extremely disturbing, so. This episode mm-hmm. contains the topics of sexual assault, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion Clearly is not, advised. Yeah. <laughs> this episode contains the topics well, of sexual assault, years, so murder, so and suicide. So, Listener discretion again, is, is advised. Going to be another long one. This episode contains the topics <laughs> of sexual assault, murder, and suicide. Yeah. This episode contains the topics of sexual assault, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion. This episode contains the topics of sexual assault, murder. This episode contains the topics of sexual assault, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains the topics. This episode contains the topics of sexual assault, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion mm-hmm. is advised. Buckle up. Ariel Castro was born in Puerto Rico on July 10, 1960, to his parents, Pedro Castro and Lillian Rodriguez. He was the third born child of four. In 1962, when Ariel Castro was two years old, his mother found out that her husband, Ariel's father, was married to another woman and had four other children. Upon confronting him about this, 
Pedro abandoned his wife and children to live with his second wife and family. How do you have a second wife to begin with? I have no idea how this is possible unless he worked a job where a quote job where he was gone for long periods of time. I have no idea how you continue with one family and then go on with another without somebody raising some sort of suspicion. Yeah, and I would assume that that's not even legal. It definitely isn't. So I don't he must not have been legally married yeah. to both. I'm not sure. And you know, how can you afford that either? Right. So after finding this out, Ariel's mother left to work in Pennsylvania for four years, and during this time, he was raised by his maternal grandmother in Puerto Rico. When Ariel Castro was only five years old, he was consistently sexually abused by a nine-year-old boy. This abuse was not reported. It was said that at a young age, Ariel Castro developed an obsession with sex and would compulsively masturbate. When Ariel Castro's mother returned, it's alleged that she was both mentally and physically abusive. Ariel and his siblings were beaten and insulted daily. We're only a couple minutes in and we're already right into the nitty gritty. Yeah. In 1970, when Ariel was 10 years old, he and his family immigrated to the United States, settling in Cleveland, Ohio. Although he didn't excel in school, Ariel Castro graduated from Lincoln West High School in 1979. So I'm just going to show you a photo of Ariel when he was a teenager. Okay. So he's got the slick back, dark hair. He's got a mustache. Do you know how old he was in that picture? I actually don't. He doesn't look that much different than like him later in life. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't. Just minus the gray hair, he honestly looks the same. Yeah. In 1980, Ariel was dating his neighbor, 17-year-old Grimilda Figueroa. Ariel was allegedly forced by Grimilda's family to take her into his care because she had lost her virginity to him. Grimilda gave birth to their first child in 1981, and following the birth, Ariel Castro's behavior allegedly took a turn, and he was controlling and abusive towards Grimilda. Here's a photo of his wife and a couple of their children. Ariel would not allow Grimilda to leave their home, and when he did allow her to leave, he would choose where she could shop. It got to the point where he would also control what she watched on TV. If Grimilda disobeyed Ariel's demands, she would be severely beaten. Ariel would regularly break Grimilda's bones, and he would only let her seek medical treatment when she promised that she wouldn't report the abuse to authorities. In 1989, Ariel brutally beat Grimilda while his own brother was present, and when his brother called police, Ariel was arrested, but quickly released once Grimilda indicated that she would not press charges. I feel like this is just typical intimidation and abuse by a partner, Mm -hmm. because the partner is so terrified of something worse happening, probably to her children, Yeah, and so she wouldn't even dare press charges because, unfortunately, in cases like these, he would probably be quickly released, Yeah, regardless of if he had to do jail time, mm-hmm. or he'd be out on bail in the meantime, and he would make her life a living hell. Mm-hmm. In 1992, Ariel and Grimilda moved to 2207 Seymour Drive in Cleveland with their four children. Shortly after the move, Castro put a padlock on all of the doors in the home and began spending a lot of time in the basement. He replaced the basement door with a heavy-duty trapdoor, 
and then lined it with bricks in an attempt to soundproof the door, and he tinted all the windows. That's not shady at all. No, not at all. Red flag upon red flag. Yeah. The rest of the family were banned from entering the basement. Like, how do you not have questions about that? I have to hope that it was because he would abuse them if they pushed it. Like, if it was my dad, for example, I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what are you hiding? But I'm also not worried that my dad is going to beat the shit out of me. Right. What are you hiding? My curiosity would probably get the best of me. Right. And it just shows that he clearly has some sinister plans. Mm -hmm. Romilda was not allowed to use the family's telephone and the family would be locked in the home, sometimes for days at a time when he would go away to play a gig with his band. So essentially he was holding his family captive. Exactly. From the beginning. Yep. The spousal abuse that Grimelda suffered became progressively worse. When she became pregnant with their fifth child, Ariel tried to force her to miscarry by violently punching and kicking her in the stomach. On multiple occasions, he broke her nose, arms, and ribs. At one point, he even threw her down a flight of steps and broke her skull, which caused seizures and a blood clot in her brain and led to the development of an inoperable tumor. Wow. Like, what the fuck? That's terrible. Like, how do you break someone's skull? That takes, I would assume, an excessive amount of force. And then the tumor to grow on top of that? That's horrible. Unbelievable. After coming home intoxicated one evening, Ariel attacked his wife. This time, his 12-year-old son attempted to seek help by running out of the house. Ariel chased after him, and it was then that Grimelda locked the door and called the police. Unfortunately, after Ariel Castro's arrest, he was released on bail and threatened to kill Grimelda and the children if Grimelda testified against him. So again, she dropped the charges. So frustrating. How do you get help in this situation? Mm-hmm. What are you supposed to do? Yeah. Following this incident, Grimelda and the children moved into her mother's home and Ariel rarely had contact with them. He then installed various home security alarms and put up mirrors around the house. I'm assuming that this would be to be able to see around corners, which is creepy as fuck. Mm-hmm. When his wife found a new partner, he attempted to run him and his children over with his car. This guy is fucking crazy. Right from the get-go. Yeah. In 1997, Grimelda was given full custody of their children and Ariel was denied visitation rights. Ariel Castro continued to harass and threaten his ex-wife and was allegedly reported to regularly abduct his children. In 2012, Grimilda Figueroa unfortunately passed away due to complications caused by her brain tumor. So, he killed her. Wow, I didn't know that part at all. That's fucked. Ariel Castro continued to live in the home. He worked as a bus driver for an elementary school and he played gigs with his Latin band, Grupo Fuego. Referring to Ariel Castro, one of his neighbors, Charles Ramsey, said, quote, He's somebody you look and you look away because he's not doing nothing but the average stuff. There's nothing exciting about him, end quote. Throughout his life, Ariel Castro's sexual fantasies and sexuality began to take a dark turn. He has been described as an aphibophile or a hebophile. Aphibophilia is an adult who has sexual interest in mid to late adolescence, age 15 to 19. And hebophilia is when an adult has sexual interest in pubescent adolescents or children. 
So essentially individuals that are pubescent and appear to have the physical sex characteristics of an adult, but are still not physically or mentally developed, generally between 11 and 14 years of age. Regardless of their sexual, physical sexual maturity, these are children who are not able to fully understand or process the consequences of a sexual relationship and in addition are vulnerable to being manipulated and abused by adults, particularly adults in positions of authority. The use of both of these terms has caused controversy, as many argue whether or not it should be classified as a mental disorder like pedophilia. In my opinion, regardless of if their physical sexual attributes are developed, they're a child. Mm -hmm. And if you're aware that that person is not an adult mentally, you're a pedophile to me, period. Mm -hmm. And I feel like terms like these make it seem like it's different than pedophilia if the child is sexually developed. But to me, it isn't. I just assume the pedophilia means children in general. Right. Which, when do you turn an adult? Isn't it 18 or something? And like a grown-ass man. Mm -hmm. There's no need for you to be looking at anybody under the age of 18 whatsoever. Yeah. And if you do, then you're just a creep. Plain and simple. And I think that to give these terms sort of like a specific definition as if it's different than just being a fucking pedophile to me it just doesn't sit right with me mm. it's like oh she's 11 but like she has boobs yeah like, so what the fuck yeah, so that makes it all right she's 11 if they are a child why do their physical characteristics matter call a spade a spade right it's a fucking pedophile you're a sicko yeah i've never i've never heard anybody argue that side of things before like it's weird that anybody would even try to argue that i don't know i feel like only a pedophile would but exactly <laughs> what do i know <laughs> anyway you know where i found this information it clearly stated that there's controversy around it mm. and I, it's just not a conversation i want to get into mm. if you know that somebody is a fucking child you're sick mm -hmm. so ariel had three victims that he would abduct in this story first one being michelle knight so we're going to talk about her first so this is a picture of Michelle, and this was the age that she was kidnapped at, which was, she was 21. So all three of these girls have tragic stories, but Michelle's is especially heart-wrenching because of the life she led up until the point she was kidnapped. So Michelle was born on April 23rd, 1981. She had a very difficult life from the beginning. She lived with her mother, Barbara Knight, and her two twin brothers, Eddie and Freddie. Her family had very little money and they were living in poverty and they moved around a lot and sometimes even lived in cars. When Michelle's family did have a roof over their head, the place was usually too small to sleep all three children, so Michelle would have to sleep on her brother's bedroom floor. It was said that Michelle's mother, Barbara, was a very neglectful mother and this led to Michelle having to take care of her younger brothers most of the time. Michelle was very short and because of this, plus the fact that she was poor and her family couldn't afford nice clothes, led to her being bullied and tormented at school. She was also intellectually delayed in school, which further made her feel like an outcast. And to top it all off, Michelle states in her book, Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed, that she was molested at five years old by a male family member that lasted for a few years and she never told anybody because he threatened to kill her. So at 15 years old, Michelle ran away from home and lived under a highway bridge. She actually slept inside a large garbage bin that she stole, and a nearby church would feed her. Sometimes she would also sleep on the sidewalk outside of church. 
And I just can't imagine how that is more appealing, sleeping in a garbage bin and outside on a sidewalk than actually being in the comfort of your own home. Right, because her home had no comfort. Mm-hmm. I feel so much for this girl because she did not have any support from the day she was born. Right. And the fact that this happened to her, obviously all three girls, it's an absolute tragedy and it's fucked up. But just to think that she could not catch a break. Mm-hmm. Just thing after thing after thing after thing. It just never stopped. Right. So while homeless and on the streets, she met a drug dealer named Sniper who offered her money and a place to live if she agreed to sell drugs for him. Despite having to sell drugs for a living, Michelle finally felt like she was able to stand on her own two feet again. She had a roof over her head, money in her pocket, and Sniper was actually becoming a close friend to Michelle. However, Sniper would soon be arrested for drug possession, and once again, the roof was ripped off of Michelle's head and she was forced back onto the streets. Apparently, Michelle's father spotted her out on the street one day and forcefully threw her back into his car and brought her back home. Sometime later, Michelle meets a new boy, and they soon began dating. He would get Michelle pregnant, and soon after she found out she was pregnant, she tells her boyfriend, and her boyfriend tells her that he doesn't want to be with her anymore, and he actually has another girlfriend, and he stops seeing Michelle altogether. So, once again, just another... Slap in the face. So, at 18 years old, Michelle would give birth to her baby boy, who she named Joseph Lee. She would call him Joey for short. She was absolutely obsessed with Joey, and he was the light of her life, and Michelle finally felt like she had a purpose. She vowed to do whatever it took to give Joey a better childhood than she had. For Joey's first Christmas, Michelle was on welfare and didn't have a lot of money, so she made him a little Christmas tree out of sticks and decorated it with lights, and her family doctor actually gave her some gifts to wrap up and give to him on Christmas Day. So it just goes to show the amount of effort that she's willing to put in. Like, I feel like a lot of parents who are in that situation would just kind of throw their hands up and be like, it is Mm -hmm. what it is. But she was doing what she could to try to give her her son as normal of a Christmas day as she possibly could. Yeah, she was clearly a really good mother. And she, from her experience, probably thought, I need to do whatever I can to make sure that this doesn't happen to you. Right. Which it's so friggin' heartbreaking. So Michelle's mom started dating a new man who was an alcoholic, and there was one day where Michelle had to leave the house to do something, so she left Joey at home with her mother and her mother's new boyfriend. When Michelle returned, she walked in to find her mom's boyfriend passed out drunk on the couch with Joey unsupervised, and apparently at one point in the night, this man grabbed Joey's leg in a fit of rage and fractured his knee. I think he was only like one or two years old at this point. That is so terrifying. It makes me sick to my stomach Mm -hmm. to think about hurting a child. I can't even. Michelle was furious at her mother for leaving Joey in this man's care and rushed him down to the hospital. It was determined that Joey didn't have a fit home life, so he was taken into custody by Child Protective Services. Michelle was absolutely devastated by this and did everything she could to try to stop this from happening, but to no avail. Joey was put into a foster home. Michelle was granted supervised visits, but didn't always have access to a vehicle, and she didn't drive, so it made it hard for her to attend all of these appointments. But she wanted nothing more than to have her son back, and she was going to do whatever it took. Thinking about having my child taken away from me to go live with another family, I can't even verbalize what that would be like. 
imagining it is painful. I would climb fucking mountains to get my son or my child back. And she did too. She had to fucking walk everywhere. Mm -hmm. And she walked everywhere she went, miles and miles to get to these meetings. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of shitty parents out there who would not do that, so... And she had no resources. She had no help. Yeah. It's so upsetting to think about the situation that she was in Mm -hmm. that led up to the even worse situation. Right. Pretty much everything that could go wrong in her life did, but she just kept trying to push forward. So the day Michelle was abducted was August 23rd, 2002. She was actually on her way to an appointment with social services to regain custody for her son but she kept getting lost and she couldn't find the correct address. She was starting to stress because she didn't want to be late, so she ran into the closest store she could find, which was located on Lorraine Avenue, to ask the cashier for directions. While she was inside, a customer overheard her asking for directions to her social services appointment and offered to give her a ride. She turned around to see Ariel Castro standing there smiling at her. She immediately recognized him because she was actually friends with his daughter Emily, So that made her trust him. And she was so desperate to get to this appointment to get her son back that she accepted Castro's offer for a ride. Once she got into his vehicle, she noticed it was absolutely filthy and littered in garbage. She noticed that he was driving in circles and not going at all in the direction she thought he should be going in. He then told Michelle that he had a new litter of puppies at home, and if she wanted, he would let her take one home with her so that she could give it to Joey which is just so fucking manipulative. And it's really sad because I feel like since I was a child, my parents would say, no matter what somebody offers you, whether it's candy or help me find my dog, my mom used to tell me that all the time. If somebody's asking you to help find their dog, go in the other direction. Mm. And she just didn't even understand. I think the circumstances, the fact that she was desperate to find a drive, that she recognized him and then the fact that he manipulated her and she didn't know any different mm-hmm. just led to her falling literally into his trap. Mm-hmm. So at first she was hesitant, but Ariel assured her that it would be really quick. They could just run in and she could choose a puppy for Joey and then he would drive her to her appointment. She agreed, thinking a puppy would make Joey extremely happy, but told Castro that they had to be quick because she was due to be at her appointment soon. As she entered Castro's home at 2207 Seymour Avenue, she remembered a neighbor making eye contact with her. That would be the last time anyone would ever see Michelle before she was reported missing. Michelle was 21 years old. Once inside, Ariel led Michelle upstairs to where the puppies were, but she didn't hear any noises that sounded like dogs in the house. She started to get a really weird feeling. The host, just like his vehicle, was absolutely filthy and dirty and unkept. He suddenly pushed her into one of his daughter's old bedrooms and slammed the door behind him. She started to panic and started screaming that she needed to make it to her appointment, and Ariel responded, if you scream again, I'll kill you. He started tying her hands and feet together with an extension cord, and Michelle was trying to fight him off, but she was only four foot seven, and he could easily overpower her. He stood over top of her as she lay on the floor and proceeded to start masturbating, which is so fucking disgusting. I have to Like, you're disgusting. I have to not picture this. Right. Once he finished, he hogtied her and strung her up to a rod that hung from the ceiling. 
So I'm sure you know what like a hog tie is, right? Yes. It's so disturbing. Anytime I see a picture of like a human being hog tied, there is no appropriate circumstance that that should ever happen in. Essentially, it's a very complicated I mean, I don't know how to tie like complicated knots or anything. I have I, no idea. I know that you learn that shit in like the Navy and stuff, mm-hmm. but it, it's a very complicated knot essentially that you tie. But your arms are behind your back and your feet are up behind your back as well. And your, your wrists and your feet are tied together. So essentially you're completely defenseless and your neck is also tied up. It's like all in one string, essentially. I can't even fathom how a person would go about creating that mechanism. I feel like it would take a long time to execute something like that, Mm -hmm. especially if somebody's struggling. So yeah, so he hogtied her with a extension cord and hung her from the ceiling, which is also completely fucked. Michelle's body started to go numb and she didn't know what else to do other than to start praying out loud. When Castro heard her start praying, he slapped her in the head and told her to shut up. He shoved a dirty sock in her mouth and secured it with duct tape over her face, turned up loud music, and left the room. She was left there suspended from the ceiling a foot off the floor, wondering if she was going to live or die. He returned many hours later. Michelle didn't know exactly how long it had been because she was just hanging there in the dark and didn't have any concept of time. He came back with McDonald's for her and he tried to feed her while she was still hanging there, but she refused. He ended up cutting the extension cord that suspended her from the ceiling and her body dropped to the ground with a thud. He began raping her. Again, she was trying to defend herself, but what can you really do when you've just been suspended from the fucking ceiling for... X amount of hours. She can't feel any part of her body at this point. I can't even imagine the fear and you would just be frozen. Yeah. Because what could you do? She was four foot seven. Yeah. She looked like a little girl Mm -hmm. and she was very much a little girl, Mm -hmm. although she was 21. She couldn't, she didn't have the, the strength to fight back. Yeah. And if she did try to, he just got more aggressive. Mm hmm. When he finished, he laid beside her and started to cry, saying that he quote-unquote needed her. What the fuck? Which just like, fuck off, you fucking pathetic little man. He would rape Michelle multiple times a day, and almost every time he raped her, he would lay beside her and confide in her about his life and how he's a sex addict and needs to do this because he was raped as a child. Oh, give me a fucking break. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't have any fucking compassion for this man. It's terrible what happened to him, but that happens to plenty of people and they do not grow up and do shit like this. Like, the majority of the people who that happens to do not grow up to be sickos. Right. So, no, I'm not, I don't feel bad for him at all. No, he's using it, completely using it as an excuse. You are aware of what you're doing and you literally are keeping somebody as a sex slave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's okay because you were abused? Like, no. get a grip. Right, yeah. Michelle tried her hardest to fake compassion for this disgusting freak, and she would just try to reason with him and say things like, just because this happened to you as a child doesn't mean you have to do this to me. There was one day that Castro was digging through her purse and found her ID, and this is when he realized she was 21, which apparently he was greatly disappointed by this because he thought Michelle was much younger. Yeah, I think he was angry with her 
when he found out that she was 21 because he assumed that she was like 15 years old. Yeah. And I think when he was digging through her her wallet, he also found a little wallet size picture of her son, Joey, which was the only picture that she had. And he sat there and he tore it up in front of her. Oh, my God. Yeah. So back at home, Michelle's family was concerned about her whereabouts, but most of them chalked it up to Michelle running away from home because she had done it so many times in the past. However, her mother, Barbara, thought it was strange that she hadn't at least received a phone call from Michelle and thought that her daughter was missing and not just a runaway. But the police put minimal effort into searching for Michelle, and there was very little to no media coverage on Michelle's disappearance. They even got her age wrong, saying that she was 18 to 21 years old at various points. And after 15 months, Michelle was taken off the missing persons list completely. I don't understand why someone is taken off a missing persons list when they're still missing. They should never be taken off. Unless you find them, why are they coming off the list? Unless you find them dead or alive, they should stay up there. That doesn't make any sense to me. No, and I think the reason that she didn't get much coverage to begin with was because she was 21 by the time she went missing, so technically she was an adult. Mm -hmm. So I guess they just didn't really care too much although her mom tried she didn't persist she didn't try hard enough at all in my opinion i would be up at all hours of the night and day searching for my child yeah whether they are a child or an adult Mm -hmm. you better believe it right yeah and i don't think there was really much effort put forth on any of her family members to be honest which is just so disappointing So then from this point forward, she was just completely forgotten about. Yeah, pretty much. And we'll talk a bit about that later, too. Yeah, which I don't understand how someone can just vanish and you just forget about them, especially your child. Like, wouldn't that bug you? I wouldn't be able to I just don't get that. Yeah. So Ariel would constantly remind Michelle that nobody loved her, nobody cared about her, and her family wasn't even looking for her. He took pleasure in letting her know that she would never be found. He would move Michelle around to different places in his house a lot, so one day he decided it was time for her to go in the basement. So he literally dragged her down the flight of stairs into a dark, dingy basement and wrapped a chain around her waist and her neck and chained her to a pole in the middle of the room. He shoved another dirty sock into her mouth so she couldn't scream and took a nearby motorcycle helmet and slammed it down onto her head so hard that it apparently knocked her out. The motorcycle helmet for me? is so fucking terrifying i know she would have felt so claustrophobic and trapped on top of the situation that she was in Mm -hmm. like the level that he took things to to torture and put these girls in agony i cannot wrap my mind around it i know it's so disgusting Mm -hmm. so again he left michelle sitting there like that Once Michelle came to, she realized she was able to free her hands from the chains, and she took the motorcycle helmet off her head, but she couldn't get the other chains free. Pretty soon, she heard Castro returning, and once he entered the basement, he immediately noticed that she had freed her hands, which absolutely infuriated him. And as punishment, he made her do unspeakable things that Michelle still to this day can't talk about, which I can't even imagine what those things could potentially be 
with what we already know about the case. I don't even want to know. No. It's so disturbing. Mm-hmm. In her book, Michelle says that part of her died that day, which is just so heartbreaking. She was left chained up in that basement for months in complete darkness, sleeping most of the day away and only waking up when Castro came to rape and abuse her. She was losing weight from barely eating, and she would completely disassociate and try to imagine happier times with her son, Joey, and sometimes she would even try to talk to him. She would also just sit there and cry. She said that the hope of seeing him again one day was the only thing that kept her going. Meanwhile, in the outside world, Michelle was completely forgotten about. This abuse went on for years. There was one point where Ariel brought her back upstairs and put her back in one of the bedrooms and chained her to a radiator. He made Michelle help him board up the windows in the bedroom so that nobody could look in or out the window. He actually boarded up all of the windows of the house, which, again, sketchy as fuck. Why are you... Not questioning the fact that you live in a neighborhood with a guy who is, you know, if it was abandoned, right. that's one thing. But you see the guy coming in and out of the house daily and he mm-hmm. has the fucking windows boarded up. Mm-hmm. Like, can we get the police to check in on this guy? Exactly. Like, that would be my first thought. Michelle would refer to him as having a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality, stating that despite all of the abuse, every now and then he would try to do nice things for her. He would bring her a radio to listen to and a TV to watch to pass time. He even brought her a pit bull puppy to keep her company. This dog brought Michelle so much joy and she finally felt like in all of this darkness she had a sliver of light. The dog remained in the bedroom with her the entire time. There was one day that Ariel was assaulting Michelle and he slapped her in the head and the dog started barking and trying to defend her, lunging at Castro. So what did he do? He picked the dog up and broke its neck right in front of Michelle. This fucking bastard. Animal cruelty and the ability to just kill an animal like that. We talked about this before. Things that are helpless. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he didn't even think twice about it and he did it likely to make her upset. Mm -hmm. It's so beyond a level of evil that I can't even... I don't want to picture it, but I just can't even imagine how she felt in that moment. Mm-hmm. He just has no regard for life whatsoever. And he just seems to be giving her things just to take them away. Right, exactly. She was absolutely horrified and crushed and went back to feeling completely alone, which I, I just can't picture that feeling. The amount of devastation and just hopelessness and disappointment and, and loneliness and Day after day after day. Yeah. He kept Michelle nude for months, wrapped in heavy, rusty chains, and finally let her shower after eight months of not bathing. Which is so fucking crazy to me. Like, she's sitting there covered in her own sweat and blood, literally. And I would say urine and feces. And semen. Yep. And everything else. And he's just happily coming in and raping her. You're fucking disgusting. It's absolutely putrid. Yeah. So fast forward eight months from the day Michelle Knight went missing. April 21st, 2003. Ariel would abduct a new girl, Amanda Berry. Amanda's birthday was April 22nd, 1986, making her 16 years old. Amanda was finishing her shift at Burger King that day and she got off work early. The Burger King was located on Lorraine Street, 
the same street that Michelle Knight had been abducted from. Amanda lived 10 minutes away, so she called her boyfriend to come pick her up, but he didn't answer. So she just started to walk home. She was halfway home, so five minutes away from home, when she noticed that there was a maroon van blocking the sidewalk and an older man driving with a younger girl in the passenger seat. She quickly recognized the girl as her friend Angie from school, and she assumed the man in the van must be her father, Ariel Castro. The van circled back around and Ariel rolled down the window and offered Amanda a ride home. She noticed that Angie was no longer in the van, but she accepted the ride because it was her friend's dad and this put her at ease, plus he seemed like a nice man. Amanda called her sister Beth to tell her that she had found a ride home. As they were driving, Ariel started talking about his family and asked Amanda if she wanted to come over to his house to say hi to his daughter Angie, so she agreed. And I guess there was actually some family drama going on in Amanda's house at the time, so she wasn't really in a hurry to get back home, and she thought it might be fun to go visit a friend that she hadn't seen in a while, but still, she didn't plan on staying long. He brought her into the house, which Amanda also noticed was absolutely filthy. He told her that his, quote, roommate was home sleeping, which she thought was bizarre. She didn't hear any sounds of anyone else being home, and she started to get anxious. He led her into a room and suddenly locked the door behind them and ordered her to take off her pants. At this point, Amanda was freaking out and screaming and trying to get away. She wondered why the roommate couldn't hear her cries for help. He then proceeded to rape her. After he was done, he put a sock in her mouth and put duct tape over it, tied her wrists together, and put the motorcycle helmet over her head. He then brought her down to the basement where he chained her up and left her there for three days. While she was in the basement, Amanda also attempted to escape. Castro noticed this when he arrived back, and he went crazy and beat Amanda into compliance. He then brought her back upstairs and put a thick chain around her stomach and chained her to the radiator. She was kept in a different room than Michelle. During the first six days she was held captive, Castro raped her 25 times. Why is there any need for that? Also... It just makes me so sick to think about how painful that would be. Yeah. That many times in that little amount of time. And I'm sure he's being extremely aggressive. The pain on top of just the shame and just the utter terror that you would feel. Mm -hmm. It's something that to me, I can't even understand how it happened. Right. I can't understand how this is a real occurrence. I know. It's so sickening. It really is. She actually kept a tally of how many times she was raped so that when she did escape, she had proof and her family would understand what happened to her. Every time Ariel would leave the house, he would blast loud salsa music so that none of the neighbors could hear the girls screaming. Unlike Michelle, there was a ton of news coverage for Amanda. Amanda's mother, Luana, was absolutely distraught and knew that something was very wrong. Police assumed that maybe Amanda had run off with a friend, but it was completely out of character for Amanda to just disappear, and Luana knew her daughter would never run away the day before her 17th birthday, wearing her Burger King uniform. She seemingly vanished into thin air. Luana would contact a local news reporter, Bill Safros, and hound him every single day to make sure Amanda's picture was on the 11 o'clock news. Which is what a mother would do. Should do. Because you can't move on with your life. Mm Mm-hmm. 
How do you just say, oh, my daughter's missing. I feel like it's suspicious, but I'm not going to fight for her. Right. And don't get me wrong. The system also should have fought for Michelle, but you need to have those people in your corner that are going to back you up. And if it's not your own parent, then who is it? Exactly. So this news reporter, Bill, became very close with Amanda's family and covered a lot of her story and was just as invested in finding her as everyone else was. Luana was determined to find her daughter, and if she couldn't find her, she was going to make Bill find her. Bill would work with Amanda's family to do their own investigating apart from what the police were doing. They actually became so close that Luana actually went out and bought Bill a nice shirt and tie to wear the day Amanda came home. Michelle was watching the news on TV in her room and saw about Amanda's disappearance and immediately recognized her because she went to the same school and they actually had art class together. Michelle knew in her gut that Castro took Amanda. She actually confronted him about it, which surprised him, and of course he laughed it off and denied it. I don't really understand why he denied it to Michelle. Like, why was he trying to hide it from her? I can't quite grasp why he would do that. Yeah, it's like clearly she's going to find out at some point. It just doesn't make sense to me. It's not that important, but I've just always wondered that. Mm. Why did he not want her to know? Control, maybe? Yeah, that could be it. You're right. Yeah. A week after Amanda's disappearance, Luana received a phone call from Amanda's cell phone from an unknown man saying something along the lines of, I have Mandy. She wants to be here because we're married, but I'll have her back in a couple of weeks. He called back a second time and said, don't worry, she is all right, she'll come home. Luana tried to keep him on the phone to see if she could hear Amanda in the background and asked if she could speak to her, but he hung up. Yeah, so after this phone call, they essentially waited in the area in hopes that they would be able to track the phone call because they tracked it to, I think it was a few blocks, Mm -hmm. and he never called again. So they couldn't get a more accurate picture of where Amanda's phone was. Yeah. Which is so frustrating. Yeah. So he's just leaving little clues that they can't even do anything with. He's just playing psychological games with everybody involved. And it's so messed up. I just can't grasp it. Mm -hmm. So inside the house, Amanda was also held captive in heavy, rusty chains. Amanda would say, quote, It was really hard, you know, because in the beginning, that chain was around my stomach. Going to sleep at night, you know, if you wanted to toss onto your back, you couldn't do that. You would have to take the whole chain and move it to the front of your stomach so that you're not lying on the big lock on your back, unquote. I just can't even imagine that. And it just became an extension of them because they were so used to being chained. Yeah, essentially. You would just feel like a caged animal. That's literally what they were to him. Yeah. Apparently, Castro really did think of Amanda as his wife. And because of this, he would treat her much better than he treated Michelle. He would still rape her often, but the abuse wasn't as severe as what Michelle endured. He would let Amanda shower a lot more often than Michelle, but he would always get in with her. She could never shower alone, and soon after, she'd be chained right back up. Ariel gave Amanda a TV to watch and a journal. She was able to watch her family plead for her safe return, which is literally cruel as fuck. Like, you're going to take somebody and hold them captive, but also just continuously rub it in their face that their family is 
completely distraught and beside themselves. To make them watch that, like I said, he just is doing everything that he can to make everybody in the situation feel as worse as possible. Mm -hmm. It's so sick and demented and twisted. This guy is unlike any I've ever heard of. Mm -hmm. So she would write in her journal things like, quote, don't fight, don't make him mad, do whatever I have to do to stay alive and get home, unquote. There was another quote from her journal that said, quote, you never know what you got till it's gone. I just can't wait to go home. I'm 17 now, but I don't have a life. But he told me I'm young and I will go home before summer. Another two months, unquote. It's so sad that she believed that to be true. Yeah, because he would do the same thing to Michelle. He would just lead them to believe like, oh, in a couple more months, you'll go home or after Christmas, I'll let you go home. Just getting their hopes up. Just giving them hope just to strip it away. Yeah. Giving Michelle a dog just to strip it away. Right. It's so manipulative. It's just cruel, plain and simple. Yeah, it's disgusting. So this part is absolutely heartbreaking. Amanda's mother, Luana, was so desperate for any information about Amanda's disappearance that she actually met with the famous psychic Sylvia Brown during a live taping on the Montel Williams show. This was a year or so after her disappearance. Amanda was actually watching this show as it aired while chained up in Castro's house. Apparently, Luana was a strong believer in Sylvia's readings, and Sylvia ended up telling Luana something along the lines of, She's not alive, honey. I'm sorry to tell you that, but she's not alive. Your daughter's not the kind who wouldn't call. Fuck you, Sylvia Brown. Yeah. Oh my god. Right. She also mentioned something about her being in the water. So you could just see the look of hope fade from Luana's face as each word exited Sylvia Brown's mouth. For years, Luana believed her daughter was alive, and this random woman comes along and tells her that her daughter is dead and she's in in water. It just completely stole her hope and completely broke her, and it broke Amanda too. So what are your thoughts on psychics, especially in in crime cases specifically? I'll start off by saying that I have never come across any sort of scientific evidence to prove that psychic abilities exist. Mm -hmm. So I'll lead with that. And I'm a very scientific person. Same. And I like seeing evidence to back things up, and I've never seen it. I've been guilty of watching a couple of the shows where everything is just manipulated and it's probably all actors anyway, but I don't believe it. I don't think I ever will and I never have. And when I come across cases like this and even cases that we've had in our area where you hear of psychics telling parents about the whereabouts or about whether or not their child is dead or alive it's like who are you to say that Mm -hmm. who are you to look a mother in her face and steal everything away from her right and especially if amanda's mother really believed this which i'm sure she did because she went on the show Mm -hmm. and she's so desperate for answers i just can't imagine so clearly we know that sylvia brown's abilities didn't work on that day Ryan. So let's say best case, they just didn't work that day. I don't know. Is, does it work and not work? I'm not sure. I don't know. But if this woman is just a big fraud and she did that knowingly to this mother, like you are a literal piece of crap. Yeah. 
I'm not holding back here, but man, I, I mean, obviously we'll go on to learn a bit more about Amanda's mother and it just makes it even more heartbreaking. So that's where this emotion is coming from. But like, who are you? Mm -hmm. Who are you to lead somebody to believe something that you don't know if it's true or not? Right. You're just profiting and capitalizing off of somebody's grief. It's so, so gross to me. Yeah. Trick people in another way. Trick people into thinking you have powers in another way. Mm-hmm. Or if you really want to pretend that you have psychic abilities, stick to shit that isn't going to change somebody's life forever. Tell people good things all the time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why would a person ever mm-hmm. do... So this was aired on TV as well. Yeah. It's just, all I can do is roll my eyes so far back into my head, and this just infuriates me. Yeah, me too. I think it's so disgusting that she tore the hope away from Amanda's mother. Yeah. And then Amanda watched it happen, and then probably thought, she's going to stop looking for me now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I totally, completely agree with everything that you just said there. I think the idea of having psychic abilities is very fun, and... I would love to humor it, but... Just show me the proof, bro. Yeah, I'm a huge skeptic, and I've never... I mean, I've only ever been to one medium, actually two, but it was just like at a fair thing, Mm -hmm. and it was bullshit. Yeah. It was absolute fucking bullshit, and I knew when they were talking to me, it was bullshit. Yeah, they just, especially the the amateur ones that aren't on TV, you can just tell they're just grasping at straws and pulling at any sort of vagueness. Right. And we've had family members that have gone, you know, that have said, oh, like, this is going to happen to you. They told us that you're going to have blah, 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 and then it doesn't happen. It's Mm -hmm. like, of course, because it's not a thing. It's not real. I would love it to be true, but I just... In my scientific frame of mind, I just cannot imagine that it is real. It's because you can think logically and critically. Right. And the shield isn't just pulled over your eyes. And Sylvia Brown clearly cannot do that. Mm -hmm. And she clearly is a bad person for doing this. Yeah, I agree. I don't care if she did a million other good things. The fact that she did this, I just have zero respect for her because of it. Agreed. And I don't think it's appropriate whatsoever for a psychic to be involved in a in a criminal case, period. It's not an appropriate circumstance to have somebody come in and, you know, wave their magic wand. It's just, it's it's not it. You're leading investigators and other people in completely different directions with no substance. And you're wasting, you're wasting time. time. Yeah. It's a waste of time. Yeah. And a waste of resources. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's not for me. Yeah. Sorry for offending anyone who likes psychics. I, I mean, do you know what? If it's, if it's created good for people, then that all the power to you. Yeah. But for people that use it to, to tell people horrible and bad things mm-hmm. when it's clearly not legit. I mean, we know it wasn't legit. She was alive and in a house. Exactly. So where the hell did this vision come from? Yeah. Where where did she get water from? I it's just like she clearly was just pulling stuff from thin air and yeah. I just can't it just doesn't sit well with me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To be using it for bad. Yeah. And if you're a psychic or you're into psychics and you use it for good, then you know what? It's not hurting anybody. Yeah. But this clearly hurt people. Right. Yeah. So after a meeting with the psychic, Luana went home and she started packing away all of Amanda's things she had been keeping out. 
which is just, again, so incredibly heartbreaking. Like, she held out hope that her daughter was alive for all of these years and all it takes is one fucking idiot to come along and say your your daughter's dead and that makes you give up everything. Right. And it's so sad that she believed it. I feel so bad that she believed it. Me too. But she's a victim here. No, totally. Yep. So a couple years later, Luana became very sick and she was eventually put into the hospital where she passed away from a heart issue. Her family said that she died of a broken heart. Amanda saw on the news that her mother had passed away and she felt completely numb and completely broken all over again. Her mom died thinking she wasn't alive anymore. This is why I felt so strongly about it and I feel so strongly about it. Yeah. Because she went to her grave thinking her daughter was dead. Mm -hmm. And as a parent, you know that a child dying is the most pain a person could experience. Mm -hmm. And how could you put someone through that? Yeah. How could you lead someone to believe that? And I don't care if she had good intentions or not. Mm -hmm. I feel so bad for Amanda and I feel bad for her mother because she really died thinking her daughter was dead. Yeah, and I hope that this became pretty publicized that you know sylvia brown was extremely wrong and hopefully from there she wasn't able to victimize anybody else because there were there were hundreds of families that would go to her looking for help and guidance on their dead and missing children and i think it's so sad because people who are in desperate situations they clearly seek out these people for help and to be given advice or a quote vision of whatever is occurring that leads a person in the wrong direction and breaks their heart and changes their life in a negative way you are not a good person Mm -hmm. i'm sorry you're just not a good person yeah there was one day during her captivity that amanda just wanted to die to be with her mom so she screamed at ariel to let her go or kill her so he began to angrily strangle her with an old vacuum cord. Right before she was about to pass out, he let go and said he didn't want to lose her. Selfish fucking idiot. Gross. Once again, he just justified his actions due to his sexual addiction and he needed her around and blah blah fucking blah. Fast forward. On April 2nd, 2004, Ariel Castro was out looking for another girl to abduct. This was almost a year to the day later on the same street that Michelle and Amanda were abducted from and just five blocks from the exact site that he took Amanda from. He spots another young girl, Georgina de Jesus, or Gina for short. Gina's birthday was February 13, 1990, making her 14 years old, Ariel's youngest victim yet. Gina was walking home from school that day with Arlene Castro, another one of Ariel's daughters, conveniently, which is so strange to me. This whole daughter link situation that keeps happening just really is strange to me. Yeah, I agree. Because when Amanda was abducted, Angie was in the van and then she just wasn't anymore. Mm -hmm. I just have a huge question mark in my mind written next to that thought yeah like why what did he do he just had her in the van and said sorry i'm gonna drop you off here and loop around and pick her up and why didn't she say anything yeah why when she saw that amanda went missing didn't she say hey i was actually with my dad last night and he saw her and offered her a drive Mm -hmm. 
I mean, obviously, we don't know the exact circumstances, but just to sort of reiterate that I'm so confused with with his daughter's participation in this. Yeah, no, I agree. And obviously, they claim to not have anything to do with it or to have known anything, but it still is so strange to me that they just happened to be there for two out of three. It's fishy. Very much so. So Gina actually invited Arlene over to her house that day to hang out, but Arlene had to call her mother first to ask for permission. Arlene's mom said no, so the girls went their separate ways. While all of this was going on, Ariel was actually spying on the girls from his truck nearby. He pulled up to Gina and asked her if she had seen his daughter Arlene. She recognized him as Arlene's dad and told him, yeah, she went that way. He asked Gina if she would get into his truck so they could drive around and look for Arlene, and she accepted despite telling him that she just saw her two seconds ago. So she gets in his truck and soon after, she started to get nervous because he didn't turn around in the direction of where Arlene went. Just to interject here, Mm -hmm. we tell our children, we tell our loved ones, stay away from strangers, and here you have your good friend's dad. This is why I will be the parent who has the sleepovers mm-hmm. and has the other kids over my house because it just must have seemed completely innocent to her. She was 14. She was just with her. Mm-hmm. I know. It's her friend's dad. Right. Whether you know him well or not, if it's your friend's dad, of course you're not going to think anything malicious is going on. Yeah. So it's like, how do you differentiate what's a safe situation to step into and what isn't it's a bubble right put your kid in a bubble yeah that's the only solution it's just when obviously i'm exaggerating but when situations like these happen it's like what could her parents have done differently right just i guess say before you get into a vehicle with anybody no matter who it is call me and see if it's okay first Mm. that's all i guess that's all you can say yeah or just don't get in just don't I'll pick you up if you ever need anything, so you stay where you're at and I'll come get you. Yeah. So, as I was saying, he didn't actually go in the direction of where Arlene went at all. He actually started driving towards his home and said that he needed to grab something at home first. So, in her head, Gina is trying to justify his actions because, once again, this was one of her friend's fathers, so she trusted him. Ariel also knew Gina's father, Felix, because Felix had purchased their family car from Castro. Gina's aunt also lived on the same street as him, so again, Gina trusted him. Once they arrived at Ariel's house, he asked her to help him bring something inside. Once inside, he led her down to the basement, locked the door, and told her she wasn't going back home. He then proceeded to tie Gina's hands together and put duct tape over her mouth. He chained her to the pole by the neck and stomach and left her there in the freezing, cold, dark basement. Gina's family was determined to find her. Her parents knew something wasn't right, but once again, the police brushed it off and said that maybe she was just out with a boyfriend. Her mother, Nancy, asked police to issue an Amber Alert, but they refused. Which I hate this rule so much. An Amber Alert is only technically supposed to be used if there's a witnessed abduction of a child. Which I don't agree with that. And if you want to call it something completely different, then call it something completely different. But if a child goes missing, regardless of the circumstances, whether it's a witnessed abduction or not, there needs to be an alert put out. There absolutely does. How do you expect 
in those crucial hours, those crucial first hours of needing to find someone, especially a child, why don't you want the world to know and to be looking out for it and to be aware of their surroundings or for people who may have seen something and not thought anything of it to think, okay, maybe that was a little suspicious rather than a couple weeks later when it comes on the news and they completely forget. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why they don't want to do that. Is it too much effort for them to put an alert out or do they think it's going to bother people too much? Like who gives a shit? A child is missing. Did you hear about there was some sort of shooting that happened at West here in Canada and the police released an emergency alert and it was, I think, around 6 a.m. and people called 911 to complain. Are you fucking serious? And then some people wrote in or called the non-emergency line, but like, you're seriously calling 911 to complain that an alert woke you up about an active shooter? Yeah. Get a fucking grip. So yeah, people would complain, but who gives a shit? Your life is minorly inconvenienced over someone else's complete and utter fear and devastation. Except if they were in the situation where their family was, they would feel completely differently about it. A hundred percent. That's absolutely fucking enraging and ridiculous. People will complain about anything and everything. (sighs) Yeah. But for the safety of a child... Yes, that you're right. There should be some sort of alert. And yeah, maybe call it something different. But there's a child missing and children missing is a massive emergency. Right. So Nancy was adamant that her daughter did not run away. She was also adamant that her daughter was not dead. She said she felt her daughter was still alive and her motherly instincts would tell her if her daughter was dead or not. The motherly or the parent instincts were much stronger than fucking Sylvia Brown's whatever she had going on. Yeah. Police had a feeling that Amanda and Gina had been taken by the same man and so did the families of both Amanda and Gina. Gina's father was taking it really hard. He would say, quote, I felt like I didn't do my job very well. As her protector, I put it on my fault that this was happening to my child. I felt right then and there that I had failed, unquote. Which is just so sad because I'm sure as any father would feel, especially for their little girl, that they are supposed to be their protector. And just to have your little girl ripped from your hands must just be the most hopeless feeling in the world for a father. If something happens to your child as a parent, a million and one things would be going through your head. But the most important ones would be, it's my fault. Mm -hmm. Or you could have done something differently. Right. What could I have done? And I can't believe I didn't protect my kid. Mm -hmm. It's so heartbreaking. And clearly it was not their fault. No. It was nobody's fault except the sicko that took her. Exactly. And you can't torture yourself with the what ifs. Nothing is going to change what happened. And it, like you said, it's no one's fault but, but his. Yeah. So the families of Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus actually met up with each other. And this would have been before Amanda's mother, Luana, had passed away. So upon meeting, Luana hugged Gina's mom, Nancy, and just said, quote, I don't even know what to say to you. I just hope you don't have to wait as long as me, unquote. The families would get on TV and beg for their daughters back stating that they thought they'd been abducted and someone had them held captive. Two months later, back at Castro's home, he took Gina out of the basement and brought her to the upstairs of the house and put her in one of the bedrooms. This is where he would rape her for the first time. He made comments about how she was a virgin, so she'd never forget that he was her first. 
In the room, she immediately sees a picture of Amanda Berry hanging on the mirror inside his room and asks Ariel about it, saying that she had seen Amanda all over the news. At first, Ariel said it was his ex-girlfriend, and that's why he had her picture. Gina obviously didn't believe this, so he finally brought Gina to meet Amanda, which I can't even imagine that moment. I feel like it would just compound the fear so much more just to see this girl who has been all over the news, who's been missing, no one has seen or heard from her, and all of a sudden you're in the same house as her. And just knowing that nothing has been done to find them and now you're in this same situation, you would feel so much more helpless. Mm Mm-hmm. So Ariel helped aid in the search for Gina, and he even attended multiple vigils that her family held. He actually went up to her parents to hug them and give his sympathy for what they had been going through. You're not human. He isn't. He actually isn't. Mm. He'd later go home and brag to Gina about how her parents had no idea that he had her. Approximately one year after Gina went missing... The FBI released a composite sketch along with the description of a male suspect. The suspect was described as Latino, 25 to 35 years of age, 5 feet 10 inches, 165 to 185 pounds with green eyes, a goatee, and possibly a pencil-thin beard. Ariel Castro was 5 foot 7 inches, 179 pounds, with brown eyes and a goatee. So this is the composite sketch, which I think isn't that far off from Ariel. Yeah, I don't think it is either. I think the major differences are that this composite sketch, the face is a lot thinner. Yeah. The features are a little bit thinner. Right. Than Ariel's. But when you look at them side by side, there are quite a few similarities. Mm -hmm. The ears especially stick out to me. And obviously the mustache, the goatee, the dark features. Yeah. It's definitely very similar. Yeah. So in May of 2012, which would have been eight years after Gina's abduction, Gina's mom was passing out more missing flyers for Gina and Ariel was aware of this. So he stopped by to ask Gina's mom if there was any updates on the case to which her mother responded that there wasn't, but she gave Ariel a missing poster to take home. Ariel would return home and give the poster to Gina to rub it in her face that nobody knew where she was. Gina saved this poster and decorated it in hearts and stickers and she kept it with her. So this is a picture of the missing poster that she decorated. So you can just see that she's clearly trying to hold on to any hope that she can. And maybe this is just a reminder that her parents are still looking and still love her. This is probably the only positive thing that she has anymore. Right. And the only thing that she has to look forward to. Yeah. And when I looked at this poster and the way she decorated it, I just it just reiterated to me that she is still a child. Yeah, exactly. She was abducted as a child and she never got the chance to grow up and she's decorating her own missing poster yeah and i feel like no matter how long you're held in captivity your brain doesn't progress past the age that you were abducted so even when they were found i still feel like they were probably very mentally immature because they're not out in society anymore they're not learning anything and they're being abused yeah so imagine the damage that that causes Mm -hmm. to your development Right. Your mental and your physical development where you're being starved and abused constantly. I can't even imagine. 
So as mentioned before, during their captivity, the three girls would be chained in radiators in their rooms with big, heavy, rusty chains. The windows of the house had been boarded up and the doorknobs of the doors had been removed and replaced with multiple locks. Their rooms were filthy. He gave them plastic garbage cans to use the bathroom in and he would give them TV so they could sit and watch the news coverage on their disappearances. There was actually an episode on America's Most Wanted for the disappearances of Amanda and Gina, and he actually sat in the room with the three girls together and watched this with them. Like, oh, one big happy family, let's grab the popcorn and watch America's Most Wanted, and your families once again plead and beg, and haha, no one knows that you're here with me. The power trip that he must have been on during that. It's so twisted to me, and to put them in situations where he probably wanted to feel like it was normal and not forced is so gross to me. Yeah. He would always blast salsa music so loud that the girls didn't even know if he was home or not. As Amanda mentioned earlier in this episode, he was actually in a band and he would invite his band members over to the house so that they could practice their songs. But the entire time, once again, he continuously had this loud music blaring so nobody could hear the girls. And just the audacity to even risk having other people in your house when you have people captive. He was so brazen. Yeah. And he had them so controlled and manipulated that he knew that they wouldn't make a sound. Exactly. And his band members would say after the fact that there were a few times that they were over at his house and they would hear weird noises and weird bangs and he would just brush them off or make excuses and they just moved on they didn't think anything of it so apparently ariel named his penis charlie and he would say things like whatever charlie wants charlie gets which like fucking barf i didn't come across this and i am sick to my stomach it's gross like you're mentally unwell He raped the girls up to five times a day and forced them to tell him he was sexy and that they loved it, which just adds a whole other layer of fucking disgust on top of it. At first, he kept them all separated, but he ended up moving Gina and Michelle into the same room. Amanda always seemed to be isolated, which again, I don't fully understand why that is. I think that it was, again, control. And I think because he really favored Amanda, he wanted her to really not like the other girls. Mm. And he, you know, was doing this game of pinning the girls against each other and telling them that one said one thing and the other said another thing. And I think he really wanted Amanda to believe that he loved her and it was only her and that the other girls were saying mean things about her so that none of them would sort of come together to gang up on him. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so gross. And he also kept Amanda on on a pedestal. He did. And would call her his wife and stuff like that. I think it was just all these psychological games that he played with the girls and I think that for some of it it just didn't make any sense because he's a, an absolute idiot mm-hmm. and I think for some of it he just was thinking I can't have them team up against me and so I need to make sure that they aren't friends right yeah so there would be some days where he would purposely leave the doors of their bedroom unlocked to see if they would try to escape 
and he would hide and wait, and when he saw one of them trying to escape, he would viciously beat them. So he was essentially conditioning them not to try to escape, which worked. They stopped trying, even when they knew that, you know, he wasn't home or they probably were able to, you know, get some sort of freedom. They just wouldn't even bother because they were that afraid that he would just be sitting there playing tricks on them. He would do that multiple times. And then there would be instances where he would actually want them to come out where he was being his, quote, nice self. Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, we're not coming out. You're tricking us. Right. It's so fucked up. Yeah. He would threaten them that if they did try to run, he would hang them upside down from the ceiling and let the blood rush to their head, which we know he's capable of because he did that to Michelle. He would even force them to play Russian roulette by putting a single bullet into a five-barrel gun and making them put it up to their head and pull the trigger. The psychological trauma that something like that must do to your brain. Thinking like, I'm going to sit here and basically off myself and potentially commit suicide right now, but I might not. And then even when you pull the trigger and you hear the gun click and you're still alive. And the fact that he got pleasure in watching them go through that Mm -hmm. is unbelievably messed up. Yeah, and I think one of the girls would say, like, you know, at this point, I don't even care if I die, so. I think that he also had Michelle point the gun at him and said, if you pull the trigger, it means you don't like me, and if you don't pull the trigger, it means you like me. And Michelle thought, well, what the fuck do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. And she pulled the trigger. Oh, really? Yeah, and obviously there was no bullet. Wow. And who knows? Maybe there was no bullet in it at all. Yeah. And he was just testing her because everything was a test and she got hell for it. Yeah. I was just going to say, I wonder what he thought when she, when he realized that she actually did it. I would have been click, 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 (laughs) click. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's empty this gun, please. Yeah. That is so fucked up. The girls would say, quote, his whole persona was terrifying. He would turn into Jekyll and Hyde. Like, he was nice one moment, and then he would turn into a horrible monster. Amanda said in an interview, quote, The more we cried and showed him our pain and sorrow, he, like, got energy from that. Like, it helped him. So we kind of learned to not cry. Don't show him your pain. Don't show him you're mad. Unquote. He was a sexual sadist. So sexual sadists experience positive feelings very differently from normal people. It's not joy that they're experiencing. They're actually experiencing a sense of pleasure, and it's often sexual pleasure and arousal, often with a penile erection to watch another person suffer and beg for their life and knowing that they're very powerful and knowing that they're the ones controlling whether that individual dies or lives. No words. Just no words. No words. How are you getting sexual pleasure and an erection from that? From what most people would cringe and fear and would be so upset and disgusted. Yeah. It's like so unbelievably backwards. And like you said, it's inhuman. Mm-hmm. Like you are not a human. You're literally a fucking monster. You're evil. So there were multiple opportunities that could have brought police close to Ariel Castro In 2004, Ariel's daughter, Angie, who was friends with Gina and the last person to see her before she disappeared, received a strange voicemail message. 
It seemed to be a pocket dial and contained the voice of a girl screaming in horror, quote, get away from me, unquote. Angie reported the call to police, but it was traced by the FBI to a different phone. But this was a brand new phone and only two people knew Angie's phone number, her mom and her dad, which I don't understand why the police wouldn't have further investigated. Especially, like I said before, not to blame anyone other than Ariel Castro, but why didn't she think I saw my dad with a girl who's missing and then I get this weird phone call? Right. Or, hey, my dad's house is boarded up and he's really private and we can't ever go upstairs or in the basement anymore and yada, yada, yada. You know what I mean? Right. I guess it's just because I know that or I believe that if I was in that situation, that's what I'd do. So it just blows my mind that he was able to go this long without being caught. Yeah. I would go as far to say that it's like borderline unbelievable that they weren't making the connections at at one point or another. Yeah. That their dad could potentially be responsible for this. Whether they chose to act on it or not, you know, obviously they didn't act on it, but I would be completely astonished if that thought didn't cross her mind at least once. Yeah. And I mean, I it would be a hard thing to admit after the fact, because then you'd essentially be admitting, I kind of thought that this might be true, but I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. So I guess we'll never really know. Yeah. In 2010, the police raided the house next door to where the girls were being held. I think this was like a drug raid or something. But they were too afraid to yell for help, despite hearing the sirens outside, which they were so close to. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. At one point in their investigation, investigators began looking into Fernando Colon, the partner of Ariel's ex-wife, Gramilda, as a suspect in Gina's disappearance. So this is the same guy that Ariel tried to run over that I mentioned in the beginning. Okay. He essentially became their kid's stepfather. Mm -hmm. And Ariel, in the beginning, was really combative and tried to break them up and essentially tried to kill him and his kids. So this is the same guy. Okay. Fernando said that he told police that they should be looking into Ariel Castro, telling them about his history of violence and that he knew Gina, but this lead allegedly was not followed up on, which is just unbelievable. There were so many connections to Ariel Castro. Mm-hmm. And that then were just all overlooked. of that on top of the fact that he lived in the area. Right. Yeah, it's pretty mind-boggling. Yeah. Stockholm Syndrome is a topic that came up pretty frequently in our research on this case. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Stockholm Syndrome and then talk a bit about the girls' opinions and expert opinions on whether this existed or not. Stockholm Syndrome is an emotional response that occurs in people who have been abused and held captive or hostage wherein the victim develops positive feelings towards their abuser or captor. The response is said to be strongly linked to the power dynamics within hostage-taking, kidnapping, and abusive relationships. Stockholm Syndrome is not a psychological diagnosis. Victims who are held captive or abused over the course of days, months, or years may sympathize with their captor or abuser and feel close to them, even developing a bond with them. In turn, the abuser may also treat the victim better and inflict less harm on the individual. A person who has Stockholm Syndrome may experience conflicting emotions toward their captor or abuser. 
These feelings may include but are not limited to love, empathy, sympathy, and a desire to protect their abuser. Stockholm Syndrome was first named in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973 by a criminologist named Nils Bejero, who used the term to describe the reactions that hostages of a bank robbery had felt towards their captor. Despite the fact that the robbers had threatened their lives, hostages actually developed positive feelings and bonded with the captors, some even helping to pay for their legal counsel once the criminals were apprehended. That's crazy. I can't believe that either. I feel like bank robbery is a little bit of a different case here. Yeah. You know, I might be more apt to bond with somebody who's robbing a bank if they tell me, like, hey, I don't want to hurt anybody. Right. But XYZ and I need money and my family member's dying or whatever the fuck. But that can't really be compared in this situation. But that's essentially where the term came to be. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, in other cases that are kidnapping or, you know, being held captive. Maybe it is such a scary and traumatizing situation that your mind can only go to trying to feel some sort of human connection because that's what humans are built to do. Right. You're just clinging to whatever you can at that point. Yeah, it's like a survival mechanism, basically. Totally. Yeah. So obviously not all people who experience abuse or are held hostage experience Stockholm Syndrome, and the mechanism behind the emotional response is not completely understood. However, it's hypothesized that it's a survival mechanism, like Kristen just said, that the victim develops in order to cope with the traumatic experience they're going through. Factors that are thought to increase the likelihood of developing Stockholm Syndrome are being in an emotionally stressful environment for a long period of time, sharing a space with the captor, usually under rough conditions, and when the victim relies on the captor for their basic needs. If the captor or abuser is kind towards the victim, the victim may cling to this kindness and have sympathy towards the abuser. Stockholm Syndrome is not listed as a formal mental health diagnosis in the DSM-5, but there are prevalent symptoms that occur in those who are experiencing the response, such as guilt, confusion, embarrassment in regards to their feelings toward their captor or abuser, as well as post-traumatic stress disorder. The disorder is controversial and perplexing due to the fact that the sympathetic and positive feelings that the victims feel towards their captors are usually the opposite of the horror and dismay that is usually felt by an onlooker. So this is obviously a controversial thing because people from the outside would be like, what the fuck? How are you feeling any sort of positive feeling towards this person? Mm -hmm. But I think that the point is, is that they're not going through it. So maybe we shouldn't cast judgment. Mm -hmm. When abduction cases occur, particularly instances where the victim is held captive for long periods, many speculations are made about whether or not Stockholm Syndrome was developed by the victim or victims, and the case of the Ariel Castro kidnappings is no different. Many articles and discussions about Stockholm Syndrome seem to be centered around Amanda Berry, mainly due to the fact that Castro seemed to favor Amanda, thought of her as his wife, as well as another special circumstance which I will talk about shortly. According to Dr. Sahom Daz, a forensic psychiatrist who has treated many abuse victims, it's difficult to determine whether a victim has actually experienced Stockholm Syndrome. He said, quote, 
It's not a classified psychological diagnosis, and there's barely any academic research to back it up. When the FBI did a study into it in 1999, talking to victims of kidnap, less than 10% displayed signs, end quote. There are others who argue that victims are in denial, and so they refuse to believe that they have experienced the response. Dr. Dawes said, quote, However, as there are no set boundaries for what constitutes the symptoms of the syndrome, it's almost impossible to diagnose officially, end quote. Forensic psychologist Dr. Carol Lieberman said, quote, It's not believable that these women did not have an opportunity to get out to escape before a decade. There is more here than meets the eye. What I think, why I'm suggesting Stockholm Syndrome, is a situation where the kidnapped victims come to sympathize with or have feelings for or even fall in love with their captor, end quote. She also highlighted that all three of the girls were young when they were abducted by Ariel Castro, two being teens and one barely a young adult. So they were much younger than him, which would make it more likely that he would be viewed as a father figure. Carol Lieberman also said that the psychodynamics of sibling rivalry could have occurred and worsened over time. She said, quote, Where three daughters, more or less the same age, are always vying for the favor and attention of their father, competing for that, end quote. She also said he, quote, would have realized he would have known how to use this rivalry to forward his agenda of keeping them captive, end quote. This made me feel sick because just thinking of him as a father figure with what he was doing to them, I don't want to think about it. Yeah, no, I don't even want to put him in that category at all. Some experts warn that Stockholm Syndrome should not be confused with compliance. The girls likely would have faced many situations where their lives would have been made easier if they complied with Castro's orders rather than fighting back. For example, Castro might say, if you do XYZ, you'll get to eat today, or you'll get to shower. And the victims following the abuser's orders does not mean that they sympathized or felt positive feelings towards him. FBI agent Eileen Romer said, quote, I don't believe these young women ever felt sorry for this guy or felt anything good about him. He was a threat to them for 10 years, a complete and utter threat who abused them and who beat them into submission, from all reports. He was using sex as a weapon to humiliate them. I can't imagine that these girls have had any kind of positive feelings whatsoever about this man. End quote. I agree with her on that. Yeah. Gina adamantly denies experiencing Stockholm Syndrome during her captivity. She said, quote, I've heard of Stockholm Syndrome, but I didn't suffer from it. That house had been my life for over nine years. It and the people in it were all I knew each day, every day. The only human contact I had was with Castro and the other girls. I was scared constantly. He was a cruel monster who kept me chained and fed me when he wanted. I ate once a day and bathed once a week. There were no bonds, just fear. End quote. I will mention this Stockholm Syndrome again when I get into a little bit more of Amanda Berry's situation, just to sort of have a little chat about it. But I think one thing that sort of sticks out for me is why the fuck does this matter? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't matter. And, you know, I get it if it's a psychological condition and people want to put labels on things and yada, yada, yada. 
but why do we need to paint a picture of how these girls felt? It just, I don't, it doesn't sit well with me because I feel like it's very stigmatized. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like it makes it seem like these girls loved him and everything was fine and dandy. Or accepted it in some shape or form. Right. And they were victims and that's it. Yeah. And it is just a survival mechanism. Right. That's- and of course, if it, if you can be kind to somebody and it's going to keep you alive, that's instinct. Right. I just feel like the conversation on whether or not this existed, that, you know, you could go back and forth all day about whether it did or not. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have happened if Ariel Castro wasn't a sick, perverted, demented piece of shit. So... Whatever feelings they felt, I don't think anybody can put a label on it. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So now we're going to go back into some details about the girls' captivity. Throughout their captivity, Michelle Knight became pregnant at least five times. She would attempt to hide the pregnancies as best she could, but Ariel would eventually become aware of the pregnancies and he would repeatedly starve and beat her slam her against the walls, and punch her, forcing her to miscarry. This just angered me so much. Like, how fucking dare you? You're the one who's getting her pregnant. You're responsible for this. And you want to go behind and try to clean up this mess that you've created by violently causing her to essentially abort the baby, causing so much more trauma now because you've now killed his own child but also michelle's multiple children now and not to mention she's already had one child ripped away from her joey Mm -hmm. and now she's pregnant again and probably you know has a sliver of hope you know okay well i'll I'll have a baby in this mess i'll you know I'll, i'll still be able to care for something and nope he's just completely ripping that away from her and the fact that he's holding this against her and abusing her further when it's not her fucking fault yeah he's he's making her feel like it's her fault that she's pregnant during one of michelle's pregnancies ariel struck her in the stomach with a barbell and caused her to have a miscarriage although gina was also subject to repeated rape she did not believe that she became pregnant during captivity Approximately three years into the girls being held in Ariel Castro's home, Amanda realized that she had not gotten her period, and then she began to feel nauseous and was not able to keep her food down. All of the girls knew that Ariel did not want a baby in the house due to the fact that a baby would draw attention to the home and it was impossible to keep a baby quiet, especially when Ariel had friends or family over. However, Ariel seemed to embrace the pregnancy with Amanda and treated her differently than the other women. We previously talked about how Castro looked at Amanda as his wife, which is why many assumed that he allowed her to carry the pregnancy to term and took pride in having another baby. The conflicting emotions of carrying a child by your abuser, there's just no words for it. I can't even begin to imagine how she was feeling. Not only is this, you know, this fucking monster, and now you have his baby living inside of you, and, you know, you have no choice over the matter because he's raped you and now you're pregnant but this is also your baby this is your baby you're carrying it inside your body and you love it yeah it's impossible not to care for your child 
I mean, maybe everyone's, you know, experiences with this might be different. Not everyone's going to feel the same, obviously, but I just can't imagine being in that position and, and what she might have felt. It's so awful. One morning, Amanda was having pains in her abdomen and sat down on the toilet when she realized that her water had broken. Ariel brought Amanda upstairs to her bedroom and set up a small baby pool in the room. The pool was not filled with water for her labor, but rather placed in the room for Amanda to sit in so that she didn't make a mess on the bed. He then got Michelle to help Amanda through labor because she had previously given birth. He threatened Michelle, telling her that if the baby didn't survive, he would kill her. Also, the fact that Michelle was pregnant, what, five times? And then she had to help. Yep. And he would sit there and violently beat her into losing her baby time and time again, which I'm sure was absolutely horrific and devastating and sad. And then all of a sudden now she's in charge of keeping this baby alive or she dies. Yeah. It's so messed up. Like he really put Michelle through mental and physical anguish. Oh, absolutely. While Michelle coached Amanda through her labor, Ariel sat in a rocking chair in the corner of the room reading a book on labor and how to give birth to a baby. Father of the year over here. Gina, who was in another room, recalled hearing Amanda screaming, quote, the baby's not breathing, do something, end quote. And after a minute or so, she heard the baby cry. Michelle was able to resuscitate her and she was breathing. It was a girl. Amanda decided to name her baby Jocelyn Jade Berry. She decided on the middle name Jade after the song Jaded because her mother was an Aerosmith fan. Jocelyn Jade Berry was born on Christmas Day in 2006 into captivity in Ariel Castro's home. Shortly after Jocelyn's birth, Castro forced Amanda and the baby to get in the bath with him. He washed the baby and told Amanda that she needed to be careful with her because she was very fragile. Despite numerous attempts to breastfeed her baby, Jocelyn would not latch. Amanda begged Ariel to go to the store to buy formula, but he didn't want to take a risk of having a surveillance camera seeing him purchasing baby items. They had no diapers either, so Ariel brought in scissors and old socks for Amanda to use instead. He even used an old athletic sock, cutting holes in it to make her first outfit. Like, what is it with him and his fucking socks? It's insane to me. And also, it's just so, so, so sad. It is. To picture this innocent child who was brought into this world and she's in a sock. Because that is all that she has. Right. And instead of him going and buying this baby formula, didn't he just was like, nope, just put water in the bottle. Yep. They were feeding her water, which that can kill a baby. Yeah. You can't even give a baby water if they're younger than six months. Yeah. I think it's called like water toxicity or something. Yep. They can die. Yeah. For sleeping arrangements, Ariel found a cardboard box and filled it with towels and a pillow to use as a bassinet for Jocelyn. So this is a passage from Amanda's book, and it says, quote, Jocelyn is three days old and has not eaten anything yet. All she's had is water, and she's been crying a lot. I tell him I'm doing my best, but she's a baby. She cries. He goes kind of crazy when she wails, so he turns up the radio even louder. The neighbors won't hear Jocelyn crying, but the loud music makes it harder for her to sleep. I've given up asking for formula. He says it's expensive and it never goes on sale. I keep trying to get her to breastfeed. 
Come on, baby. We can do this. I start praying that my mom makes my little baby a fighter. After hours and hours, she finally latches on and doesn't let go. She's drinking, and I know she's going to make it. Someday, I'm going to have a lot to explain to her. End quote. I just can completely sympathize with her. Because if you've ever had children, you know that your milk doesn't come in right away. And during those first few days, your baby is essentially going without anything. If you're breastfeeding, if you're formula feeding, that's not the case. But if you're breastfeeding, all they can get is the colostrum, Mm -hmm. which is just like a tiny, very small amount of breast milk. And that's if they're latching. Right. Because if they're not latching, there's really nothing you can do. Right. And you're just sitting there listening to your baby cry and scream out of hunger. And I cannot even imagine the anxiety and just the, the chaos in that situation. Amanda's a new mom, and, and this is the situation that she's now having to deal with. She's trying to navigate this, not knowing what to do at all. She's got zero help, zero outside resources. And then she's got this fucking music blaring in her newborn baby's ears, just probably adding to the baby crying and not being able to sleep. And I just feel like my head would just completely be spinning. I can't even begin to understand how that would feel. Yeah. Not only was she thinking, please, God, latch and eat. She's thinking, if you don't, you're going to die because he will not get formula. Mm-hmm. It must have been absolutely horrifying. Yeah, it would be. Referring to Jocelyn, Amanda said, quote, this is his kid, you know. How do I feel about that? And she resembled him a lot. And I would look at her and I just felt like she's mine. She's mine. End quote. When Jocelyn was born, Gina said raising her was a happy distraction for them. She said, quote, it was fun because I can get away from the situation. When I was playing with Jocelyn, Jocelyn made me forget everything. End quote. Which I just find is so true about children in general. Mm-hmm. They can just make you forget and they're so innocent and... To have an individual who was completely ignorant to the situation and thinks only positive, happy thoughts and thinks the world is sunshine and rainbows, it was like for them a way to just forget. Mm -hmm. It was a way for them to think of something other than the horror that they experienced every day. Yeah, which they needed so badly. Yeah. Referring to Jocelyn, Amanda also said, quote, She loved him and he loved her. I was nervous. Like, would he touch her? Would he ever think about touching her because, you know, he had his problems? End quote. We can get this over with right now. He didn't ever abuse or sexually abuse her. Mm -hmm. Amanda continued to write in her diary, which now included her daughter's milestones. It read, quote, December 13th. She took her first step holding onto the bed. February 2nd. She started walking by herself. February 15th. She had her first high fever. This was the first time she was really sick, but she took some medicine and the fever broke the next day. As Jocelyn grew older, Ariel gave her freedoms and allowed her to do things that the three women were not given. When he left the house, Jocelyn was locked up with the other girls, but when he was home, she was allowed to play in the backyard, go to the park, or go to church with him on Sundays. Jocelyn allegedly called Ariel daddy and called his mother grandmother. 
Ariel often told people that Jocelyn was his girlfriend's daughter, and he also told others that it was his granddaughter. And I just wonder what his mother thought. Like, did she truly believe it was his girlfriend's daughter? It's definitely odd. Would it would be bizarre? I to would. Me. I would have so many questions. Like, if my son was like, "Hey, mom, here's my girlfriend's daughter." Okay, I haven't even met your girlfriend. Right. Are we not raising questions here? Yeah. When Jocelyn was old enough to understand, the girls had to choose new names for themselves so that Jocelyn would not say their names in public and raise suspicion. Jocelyn called Gina Chelsea. She called Michelle Juju, and she thought that her mother's name was Nandy. It's alleged that Ariel removed all of the girls' chains when Jocelyn tugged on Michelle's chain one day and asked, quote, Juju Locke, end quote, which is so fucking sad. Mm-hmm. He also allowed them more movement throughout the house, but only when he was able to supervise, and he always kept a gun visible in his waistband. So we can see here he's starting to let his guard down, mm-hmm. and he clearly is wanting to hide his viciousness and what he's doing from his daughter. Right. From Amanda's daughter, I'm going to call her. Yes. Amanda alleged that Ariel did not rape her as much after Jocelyn was born, but that he would still sneak in at night and assault her while Jocelyn was asleep. Amanda said that she was only safe when Jocelyn was awake. So this is a quote that I pulled from Amanda's book, her memoir, and this was one that sort of made me link Stockholm Syndrome, but I'll reiterate that, you know, either way it doesn't matter, but this sort of stood out to me as being sort of a conflicting emotion towards an abuser where an outside person might think, whoa. So I'm going to read the passage and it says, quote, I know it's wrong, but I feel closer to him. I appreciate that he treats Jocelyn well and buys her clothes and toys. He's even giving us better food and put a microwave on my dresser so I can warm up her mashed potatoes, beans, and rice. We all sit and watch kid movies together, and it almost feels normal, or at least a lot better than it used to. I desperately want Jocelyn to have a normal life, and on the days that he helps me do that, I actually feel some affection for him. He tells me that we have a special relationship because of her, end quote. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I've heard before that if you have a child with somebody and, you know, you're birthing a child that you're sharing this person's DNA with, your brain literally builds a connection to this person that whether you like them before or not is now like an unbreakable connection. You know what I mean? Yeah, that totally makes sense. And... Despite the fucking horrific circumstances and despite any horrific circumstance in anyone's life, like that's still the father of your child, right? Like it's hard not to have one inkling of a feeling towards them. And I think it's another added layer because Amanda was so desperate for Jocelyn to feel normalcy Mm -hmm. that she couldn't provide herself. So when Ariel provided it, it was like, thank you so much for doing this for my child. And maybe she also wanted to provide that normalcy by acting like... They were a normal family and appeasing him. And when you are a parent, you'll do anything to have your child survive and be happy. And Mm -hmm. I just think that this was just another way that that was shown in the situation that she was in. Yeah. And an outsider could look at that and think, you know, what the fuck? How can you feel sympathy for this guy? 
And I'm sure she probably thinks it now when she looks back. But whatever she had to do to survive and for her child to survive and be happy was the right thing to do, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. When it came time for Jocelyn to go to school, so yes, when she was five years old, Amanda created a kindergarten or primary school for her daughter. They would wake up in the morning, eat breakfast, pretend to walk to school, and bring Jocelyn to a bedroom where Amanda would kiss her goodbye and tell her to have a good day, and then Amanda would become her teacher. At the end of Jocelyn's homeschooled year in June of 2012, Amanda planned and created a kindergarten graduation ceremony for her. For the ceremony, they all got together in the bedroom, which was Jocelyn's classroom, and presented her with a certificate which read, quote, This is to verify that Jocelyn Jade Berry has graduated from kindergarten, end quote. As Jocelyn took the certificate, everyone clapped and cheered. So again, she's trying to create some sort of normalcy, and... I think it's really commendable that she even had the idea to do this because she's five years old, right? She's going to probably remember that moment now. Yep. And even thinking back to it, and even if she might be aware today of the circumstances she was born into, she'll always have that happy memory. And that just puts it into perspective how good of a mother Amanda really was. Yeah, I think she was amazing. And I think that the resiliency that she showed and what she was able to go through every single day and still make her daughter feel as though she was normal and happy. It's a sacrifice that I I can't even put into words how amazing that she is for doing that. In 2012, a prison inmate named Robert Wolford, who was a convicted murderer serving a 26-year sentence, lied to authorities telling them that he had killed Amanda Berry. He even passed a lie detector test and directed them to look for her body, coincidentally at a site near Ariel Castro's home where the girls were being held captive. Obviously nothing was found, but there were news crews on site as police began an excavation for the body, and a news reporter actually showed Ariel's brother Pedro pointing to the dig site and saying, quote, that's a waste of money, end quote. Because investigators were so close to the home but didn't find anything, Ariel laughed and told the girls that they were never going to be found. Robert Wolford was sentenced to an additional four and a half years in prison for obstruction of justice, making a false report, and making a false alarm. Good. Yes, and fucking what's-her-face should have, too. What's her name? The psychic? Oh, Sylvia Brown. Yeah, she should be there, too. Yeah, I agree. I don't understand why people do that. Why are you going to try to take responsibility for a crime that you didn't do just to get, what, some sort of sick notoriety for it? Yeah, just a couple minutes on the news? Like, you're just that bored? Right. Another note is that it's alleged that Ariel told Michelle that there had been other girls before she was imprisoned. He showed her the name of a girl that had been written on one of the walls with the heading R.I.P. written above it, but this name was never released by investigators. Police didn't find any evidence that indicated that a fourth abduction victim had been in Ariel Castro's home, nor any evidence of a murder. Do you think he was just saying that to scare them into, like, you know, I'm here, I'm capable of abducting and now killing somebody, so... You better listen to what I tell you. Yeah, I totally think that. Yeah. 
I would like to hope that he never kidnapped another girl or, or worse, killed another girl. But to me, because he kept all three girls alive, I don't think that he killed anybody. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. if his MO was to abduct a girl, rape her, and then kill her, at least one of the girls would have died. Yeah. And I feel like it's a lot riskier to keep girls alive and captive in your house. Right. And I feel like the easy way out would be to kill them and hide the evidence. Yep. So, yeah, I feel like he probably wasn't. He's never done that. He's not capable of doing that. But No, I think he's too much of a coward myself. But Yeah. All right. So fast forward to May 6th, 2013. This is when this story finally takes a turn for the better. So at this point, Michelle had been captive for 11 years and was 32 years old. Amanda had been held captive for 10 years and was 26 years old. Gina had been held captive for nine years and was 23 years old, and Jocelyn was six. So Michelle woke up that morning with a feeling in the pit of her stomach. This wave of dread and anxiety came over her that she just couldn't shake, and she wasn't sure of the reason why, but she just had this strange feeling that day. Michelle and Gina were sitting together, and Michelle said, wouldn't it be amazing if today was the day we got to go home? And Gina said, yeah, that would be amazing. Later that day, Jocelyn was wandering around the house and realized that Ariel wasn't home. She ran upstairs to Amanda and told her that Daddy is gone. Amanda noticed that the doors were unlocked but was too afraid to go downstairs and check, so she told Jocelyn to look around the rest of the house and go look outside. So she did, and that's when she told Amanda that his car was gone. Ariel had went to visit his mother that day and didn't lock the doors. At this point, Gina and Michelle could hear Jocelyn yelling that Daddy was gone, but the girls remembered that Ariel would always play tricks on them, so they were too afraid to try to see if they could escape. Amanda, on the other hand, realized that she needed to take her chance to escape, and she was wasting way too much time worrying about the potential circumstances and knew that if he was really gone, she had to act as fast as she could before he came back. Jocelyn was getting to the age where she was becoming aware of what was going on and Amanda was terrified that Ariel would begin to abuse her as well, so she knew she had to do whatever it took to get her out of this fucked up situation. So Amanda told Jocelyn, Mommy is going to go downstairs for a sec to look at something. You stay here, but if you hear me call you, then you run down as fast as you can. So Amanda went down and tried to open the front door, which it did. And this was the most she had ever seen that door open the entire time she was there. So she screamed for Jocelyn to come down and Jocelyn came running. Amanda realized that the storm door on the outside of the house was actually chained shut and she wasn't able to get out, but it was open enough for her to stick her arm out and wave for help. As this was happening, Michelle heard banging on the door downstairs and her first thought was that they were being robbed. So she looked at Gina and told her to hide. Amanda was still downstairs waving and banging on the door and screaming for help when a man walking by noticed her and walked up to the porch and tried to open the door but wasn't able to. An older lady passing by motioned to the man to leave the girl alone, despite Amanda screaming her name and pleading for help. The lady was telling the neighbors that it can't be Amanda Berry because Amanda Berry was dead. Why wouldn't you at least check? Like, that just baffled me. Oh, let's not worry about the woman pleading for us to help her because there's no way it's Yeah. Her. Because okay. that fucking psychic said she was dead. Yeah, let's not get involved in that, guys. Like, let's just turn the other way and ignore what's going on over there. 
An older black man, Charles Ramsey, who was also a neighbor on the street, didn't listen to the woman and ran up to the door and saw Amanda standing there with who he immediately recognized as Ariel Castro's granddaughter. Amanda was screaming at him that her name was Amanda Berry and she had been kidnapped for 10 years and that Jocelyn was her daughter. Charles forcefully kicked out the bottom window of the door enough for Amanda and Jocelyn to climb out. Amanda and Jocelyn were both crying and hysterical and terrified. Amanda ran out into the street and got a phone from a neighbor and called 911. Charles Ramsey also called 911. So I'm going to play Charles Ramsey's 911 phone call first, and then I'm going to play Amanda's 911 phone call after. I just love this man so much. Yeah. Wait till she needs everything. Put yourself in her shoes. Yeah. Wait till you hear this next interview that I'm going to play. So this is when one of the news reporters was on the scene and he was interviewing Charles. And this one is even more entertaining. Hey, Charles, Charles, let me talk to you. I'm talking with Charles Ramsey. He's a neighbor. Uh, t- walk me through again what happened this afternoon. You, were, you, you heard screaming. I heard screaming. I meet my McDonald's. I uh, come outside. I see this girl going nuts, trying to get out of her house. So I go on the porch. I go on the porch, and she says, help me get out. I've been, I'm, I've been in here a long time. So, you know, I figured it's a, a domestic violence dispute. So I open the door, and we can't get in that way, because how the door is, it's so much that a body can't fit through, only your hand. So we kick the bottom, and she comes out with the little girl, and she says, call 911. My name was Amanda Berry. And did you know who that was when you when she said that? When she told me, it didn't register until I got the call in 911. And I'm like, I'm calling the 911 for Amanda Berry? I thought this girl was dead. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and she got on the phone, and she said, yes, this is me. And the detective, uh, Cook, right here, Detective Gregory Cook says, Charles, do you know who you rescued? I said, I said. Now, and when did you see, when did you see Gina? About, about, about five. Good. 
So about five minutes after the police got here, see, the girl Amanda told the police, I ain't just the only ones. It's some more girls up in that house. So they went up there, you know, 30, 40 deep, and when they came out, was just astonishing because I thought they were going to come up with nothing. I figured, I mean, whoever she was, and like I said, my neighbor, uh, you, you got you got the, some big testicles to pull this off, bro, because we see this dude every day. I mean, every day. How long have you lived here? I've been here a year. Okay. You should come up, bro? Right. I barbecue with, with this dude. We eat ribs and, and whatnot and listen to salsa music. You see where I'm coming from? And you had no indication that there was anything Hey, bro, not a clue that that girl w was in that house or anybody else was in there against their will because how he is, is I just, he just comes out to his backyard, plays with the dogs, tinker with his cars and motorcycles, goes back in the house. So he's somebody that you look and you look away because he's not doing nothing but the, the average stuff. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Nothing exciting about him. Well, until the day... <laughs> what, was, what was the reaction on the girls' faces? I can't imagine to see the sunlight, to be Bro, around people. I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran into a black man's arms. Something is wrong here. Dead giveaway. Dead Charles, giveaway. Charles, thank you very Dead much. Dead giveaway. Thank you very much for your time. And Either she homeless or she got problems. That's the only reason why she ran into a black man. He is literally the best. I literally love this man. First of all, his storytelling abilities are amazing. <laughs> right. We should chuck him on the podcast. Oh my God, that would be a dream. But yeah, he's just so funny and the way he retells the story. Yeah. When a little pretty white girl runs into a black man's arms, there's you know a problem. something wrong. Yeah. yeah. Dead giveaway. That specific interview was turned into one of those little internet meme songs oh my god which is actually hilarious and this story is horrifying but this man adds some light to yeah. it yeah he just has a natural ability to make you smile yeah he's just so funny and bubbly and and thank god that he actually took action when nobody else would it's unbelievable really yeah and even after this i think charles and amanda specifically keep in touch that's so nice and yeah just the way that he talks to her like you can tell he almost views her as like a daughter he's very protective over her obviously because of what she's been through and she just views him as her, her hero. hero yeah he is her hero yeah that's amazing so charles ramsey would say that he had suspicion about ariel castro for years he noticed that the windows in Ariel's house were boarded up and there wasn't any air conditioning installed in the house, despite the stifling hot weather that the town had been getting. He thought this was very strange and he asked a neighbor about this and the neighbor just shrugged it off and said, he's Puerto Rican. So I guess that just, he just thought he was used to being in hot heat inside a house. Like, I, I don't know. How is that not suspicious though? Ramsey said that there was always something that captivated him about Ariel but he couldn't put his finger on it. He always gave him a weird feeling. Seymour, looks like they're calling me from 2210. Okay, stay there with those neighbors. Talk to the police when they get there. Okay. Hello? 
Yeah, talk to the police when they get there. Okay, all right, I'm going right now. We're going to stop them as soon as we get a car open. No, I need them now before we get back. All right, we're sending them, okay? Okay, I mean, wait, who's wait, the guy, wait. Who's the guy you're, uh, sorry, who's the guy who went out? Um, his name is Ariel Castro. I'm Amanda Berry. I've been on the news for the last two years. Okay, I got, I got that here. I already know. When the first police car arrived on scene, Amanda ran up to it and told them who she was, and the police asked if there was anybody else inside, and she said, yeah, there were two others. The street was now filling up with cop cars, and Amanda remembers feeling this huge sense of relief because she knew that Ariel couldn't get to them anymore, and they were finally safe after living through a decade of torture. Inside the house, Gina and Michelle heard sirens and heard someone climbing the stairs, but they just thought that it was an angry Ariel coming to get them. Once the girls heard police shouting their names, they froze. The female police officer appeared, and once Michelle saw the badge, she jumped into the officer's arms, shouting, You saved us. Please don't let us go. The other officer asked Gina her name, and when she told him she was Gina DeJesus, it looked like he had seen a ghost. The officer radios into his colleagues saying, quote, We found them. We found them. Unquote. He looked at Gina with tears in his eyes and said, quote, We've been looking for you for a long time. Unquote. Which is just so sad that like Michelle didn't really even get that kind of recognition. I feel so bad for the fact that she was just left behind yeah, just in so many ways. Overlooked time and time again. Both girls were naked and exited the house wrapped in blankets. Michelle looked at Gina and said, quote, can you believe it? We're free, unquote. Both of them were laughing and crying. The girls finally pulled off of Seymour Avenue after 11 years of being in captivity and immediately brought to the hospital. While all of this was going on, Gina's mom, Nancy, was cooking dinner at her sister's house, which was actually just a few blocks away from 2207 Seymour Avenue. She suddenly heard her other sister burst through the door shouting that the police had just found three girls held captive in the basement of a nearby home. They immediately froze and wondered if one of them was Gina. Nancy immediately rushed down to the house. When she got there, she saw one of the detectives that had been working on Gina's case and ran up to him pleading to please let it be Gina. And when he said yes it was, she fell into his arms. I can't even imagine the disbelief and just utter shock. You wouldn't be able to believe it. Yeah. Nancy rushed to meet her at the hospital, and while in the hospital room, Gina heard commotion down the hall and heard her mom yelling her name, and for the first time in nine years, they ran to embrace each other and were crying and smiling. That part just made me so emotional when I heard that for the first time. I can't even imagine. Amanda was at the hospital being examined with Jocelyn, and Amanda's sister, Beth, ran into the room and threw her arms around Amanda, and they were both holding each other, sobbing. She introduced Jocelyn to Beth and her other family members. It felt like a surreal moment for everyone. So this is a picture of Beth and Amanda and Jocelyn's in the hospital bed. And this is the first time that they're seeing each other. So you can just see that they're crying. They're smiling. It's just such an emotional picture. Yeah, you can see Amanda's sister is clearly sobbing. Mm -hmm. The smile on Amanda's face. Yeah, you can feel the emotion in the picture. Mm -hmm. And I just can't even imagine how that little girl, how Jocelyn feels and she doesn't fully understand what's going on. Right. 
It's just so heartbreaking, but thank God Mm -hmm. they got out. So doctors said that Michelle was on death's door. She looked sickly and weighed less than 85 pounds at this time, and she was actually suffering from a terrible bacterial infection that was eating away at her stomach. She had permanent jaw damage from the years of abuse, which she had to have reconstructive surgery for, and she was unable to bear children anymore. Michelle's mother was notified of her discovery and wanted to come see her in the hospital, but Michelle refused. She felt completely betrayed by her family's inability to care enough to search for her and had zero interest in seeing her mother, which, like, I can't really blame her for. I can't either. Especially after seeing, like, the media frenzy over Amanda and Gina, and there was literally nothing for her. She could clearly see, and not only that, Ariel did everything in his power to rub it in her face that nobody was looking for her. And how could you forgive a parent for that? Yeah. I wouldn't be able to forgive my parents because the way I would see it is you didn't care that I was gone. So why do you suddenly care that I'm back? Right. And even just having them be part of your life going forward would just be a constant reminder of the things that they didn't do. The nurses and hospital staff were incredibly kind to Michelle, but she was afraid of any men coming around her, so she requested only female staff. Other officers and police personnel, along with hospital staff, came to see the girls with their own two eyes. Some of the officers were falling to their knees, sobbing when they saw them. These officers were so invested, they had been covering this case and trying to search for these girls for literally like 10 years. And I feel like it's so rare for people to turn up alive in these situations especially after 10 years Mm -hmm. and it's probably something that they have never seen in their in their service yeah so it's i can't even imagine how they felt yeah it's like a miracle yep the girls were doted on they received gifts and flowers from the hospital staff and even from complete strangers in the community in michelle's book she writes quote After feeling invisible for most of my life, I felt grateful for all the attention, unquote. The community threw homecoming parties for Amanda and Gina, with signs and balloons hung all around their family homes. But sadly, there was nothing from Michelle. There was little to no coverage on her case in the first place, and Michelle felt like the forgotten one. While we were researching this case, I even saw some news footage on YouTube And in big, bold letters, it would say Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus. And then in little letters, Michelle Knight also found. It was so blatantly obvious, even in the media. Right. It made me feel even worse for her. Mm -hmm. Even after the fact, she was not emphasized. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's completely unfair. Michelle has since spoken on this in an interview for People Magazine and says, quote, I'm always going to remember this day, the day that I was freed, that I came home, even though I didn't have anyone to come home to. I've flourished and I've grown, unquote. So police immediately started to track down Ariel. They found a card that matched the description and confirmed the license plate number in a McDonald's parking lot. Ariel Castro was the driver of the car and his brother O'Neill was in the passenger seat. Ariel was silent as the police approached, and his brother assumed that maybe their other brother, Pedro, had gotten into trouble again. Police told Ariel that he was being held on suspicion of kidnapping, to which she said nothing. He was just stunned and quiet. 
which I would think if you're not guilty of something like this, you'd be probably screaming and yelling and being like, what the hell? I had nothing to do with this. What are you talking about? Yeah. Kidnapping who? What? Right. And he's just sitting there like not saying a word. So police took him down to the station and an officer at the station who knew Castro asked him what happened. And Ariel responded, quote, I really fucked up, man, unquote. The officer reminded him that anything he says can be used against him. And Ariel responded, quote, I don't care. I'm a victim here, too. I didn't take those girls. They came with me. I didn't make them do anything. I was abused, too, as a kid, unquote. Like, shut the fuck up. Oh, that narrative continues. Right. Yeah. The following day, May 7th, police searched Castro's house and found 90 feet of chains, padlocks, deadbolts, and Castro's manifesto confession document he wrote back in April of 2004, two days after he took Gina. In the letter, he apologized, saying he was abused as a kid, he was sick and needed help, and that he didn't want his life to go on anymore. They also found $22,000 stashed in his dryer, which is so fucking random. Like, Like what? Yeah. This money was offered to the three girls, but they turned it down and wanted it to go toward bettering the neighborhood, which, yeah, I would not want a cent of that fucking money. Yeah, I don't want your nasty pedophile rapist money, thanks. Yeah. During his interrogation, Ariel talked about his childhood and his first marriage and how he was mentally sick. He showed no compassion for his victims, but cried during parts of the interview, especially when he talked about Jocelyn. He admitted he was a sexual predator, but kept trying to say it was all consensual. So, like, which one is it? It can't be both. You can't be a sexual predator, but it be Mm -hmm. consensual acts that just pick a fucking side. He said he purposely left the door unlocked that day because Jocelyn was always complaining about being locked inside. He knew he was letting his guard down. I feel like he also just wouldn't admit that he did something wrong anyway, so... probably not. The news about Ariel Castro quickly spread, and people in the community were absolutely stunned and horrified to discover that many of them knew who he was because he drove the school bus, he played in bands at local churches and other venues, and he was always out in the community. Just side note here, the fact that this man drives a fucking school bus... I've said this before, and I'll say it again... Sexual predators or people who have these sick fucking tendencies tend to put themselves in positions where they're very close to the type of victims that they want. Yep. Bus drivers, mall Santa Clauses. Yep. Uh, Daycare daycare teachers, school teachers. What else? Taxi drivers, massage therapists. dentists. Yeah. It's disgusting. And your children are never safe except when they're with you. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry just to kind of worse than other people's anxiety around this but as Mm. you can clearly tell i have it well no people need to be aware and i feel like some people aren't and find people that you trust and stick with those people and only trust those people with your kids right because the world is whack and never leave your kid alone with a dentist or in any situation where you feel uncomfortable and trust your friggin gut Mm -hmm. a bus driver like what do you mean right it's fucked So people were also stunned because Ariel was old friends with Gina's father, Felix. Gina and Amanda were friends with Ariel's daughters. And I can only imagine the rage the families felt once they realized. It was somebody so close to home. Yeah. You'd be thinking, how the hell did we not 
realize that something was up here. Or like Gina's family. Oh, God. Like, how fucking manipulative are you? Like, if I was that father, I would probably be out for blood. Oh, I think I probably would, too. I think it would just be an instinct. Yeah. When you find out who did this to your kid. Yeah. Unreal. So here's a clip of one of Ariel's daughters, Angie, speaking out on the news of her father. And Angie was the one in the van with Ariel before Ariel abducted Amanda. All these weird things that I've noticed over, you know, over the years, like about, you know, how he kept his house locked down so tight, certain areas. And, you know, how if we'd be out at my grandma's having dinner, he would disappear for you know for an hour or so and then come back and there would be no explanation where he went like it's everything's making sense now it's all adding up and i'm just i'm disgusted i'm horrified do you ever try to get into that basement not since i was when i was very young when my mom was still living there i did pick the locks on the basement you know because there was a cheap master lock on the door um pick the lock and we went snooping and I remember there being a fish tank down there, um, which was odd because there was nobody down there to look at the fish. Did you ever see any signs of a, of a six-year-old there? I never saw signs in the house. I never saw you know, her with him. But about two months ago, um, he picked me up. We spent the afternoon together. I just had some service on my car. And he showed me a picture that was in his cell phone randomly and he said look at this cute little girl it was a, a face shot and i said she's cute who is that you know and he said this is my girlfriend's child and i said dad that girl looks like emily emily's my younger sister and he said no that's that's not my child that's my girlfriend's child by somebody else your family is attached to, to this stigma. What, what is the message that you want to tell people that they might not understand? That my father's actions are not a reflection of everyone in the family. They're, they're definitely not a reflection of myself or my children. Uh, we don't have Munster in our blood. You never want to talk to your dad again? No. I have no problem cutting him out of my life. I have no problem doing that. I never want to see him again. And another thing that I would like to ask him is, when did you think this was going to be over? How did you think it was going to end? You're 52 years old. Did you think that you can carry this charade forever? What, what did you think that was going to happen? And eventually you would have been caught. And then what of these girls? What of your family? You didn't care. What message do you have for these girls? They're safe now. They're no longer there, but they were held captive and their whole lives were turned upside down. I mean, what, what message do you have for these women and their families? I feel so much, so much sorrow that you had to endure this. I'm glad that you're back home with your family, finally, because they never stopped thinking about you. They never stopped, they never forgot you. They always thought you were alive when everybody else thought you were gone. I also, you know, I also feel sorrow that Michelle's case, you know, because I'm just now hearing about her too, that her case was, you know, treated differently because she was an adult when she came up missing. Like that's, 
it's real tragic because she was taken against her will as well, and it's, it's sickening. It's sickening because that could have, you know, that could have been, that could be anybody in that position. You know, in a blink of an eye, you can be, you can be abducted, you know, brutalized, and nobody would ever know it. You could be right around the corner and nobody would ever know it. This just goes to show. Do you want to see them at all? Do you, what, would you like to, to see them at any point? I would love to see them. I would love to see the little girl Jocelyn, but I don't want to pressure them at all. And that's maybe further down the road. Maybe it'll be a possibility. I would really love that, but you know, right now these girls need to heal. So, I mean, that particular interview sound very genuine to me. Yeah, I think it did too. I mean, I cannot imagine having news like that come out about your your father and just feeling like he is completely not who you thought he was and living this double life and it's absolutely horrifying. And whether or not they at any point thought that he could potentially be linked to, you know, being capable of doing something like this, I don't think in anyone's mind they would want to admit that their parent would actually be capable of doing something like this. So, of course, it's a complete shock to them. Yeah, and I don't think anyone thought that the reality was what it was. Right. And, you know, I think that his children knew that he was capable of really terrible things. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that probably the shock factor was a lot lower than it would be for the average person or a person whose parent was not extremely abusive. Mm-hmm. And I kind of found myself thinking, holy crap, she's just standing there talking about her father here. I know. That he did these things. Right. That's messed up the whole yeah, time. It really is. And, you know, obviously nobody should hold it against the family because you are not your family. You are not your father's actions. You are your own person. Mm-hmm. But I think people probably would have a tendency to think negatively probably about the Castro name in general after this incident. Yeah. Which is awful because they didn't do it but what he did was just so awful that i think people just thought the worst and thought that that his daughters or his family knew about it Mm -hmm. i mean the police initially thought that his brothers were in on it right yeah it would be hard not to immediately assume that especially where the daughters were around the abduction site and stuff yeah it's an interesting topic for sure yeah I think I would feel scared if I was friends with someone whose father just was arrested for all these horrific things. Oh, absolutely. I'd be like, yeah, maybe I'm going to keep my distance, but that's not necessarily fair to them either. Yeah. Just a very, a very interesting, unique situation. Mm hmm. Ariel Castro's house would soon be demolished with Gina's aunt being the one to control the demolition machine. Which I just thought was so awesome that the family was the one to actually be able to tear the host down. I feel like it would just be a F you to him. And I feel like it would just be so satisfying yeah. to get rid of the evidence of the awful, awful, awful experience that you went through. Yeah. 
It was reported that Ariel cried when he signed over the deed and mentioned all the happy memories he had in there with the girls. Oh, booty fucking who. Like, how fucking delusional are you? Extremely delusional. Like, cry me a river, bro. Yeah. You have major issues. Michelle attended this and handed out yellow balloons to bystanders to represent all the missing people who are still missing today. This was a cathartic moment for Michelle to watch the house that she had suffered in for more than a decade come crumbling to the ground. On July 9th, 2013, the three women, Michelle, Gina, and Amanda, released a statement which thanked the public for their support. At the time, counsel representing the three victims indicated that the women, quote, still have a strong desire for privacy, end quote, and did not want to speak to the media about their time in captivity. Within the statement, Amanda is speaking first, then Gina and her father and mother speak, and finally Michelle makes a statement. So I'm going to play that now. I want everyone to know how happy I am to be home with my family, my friends. It's been unbelievable. I want to thank everyone who has helped me and my family through this entire ordeal. I'm getting stronger each day, and I'm having my privacy has helped immensely. If you could say something to each and every person out there who contributed money to your funds to help you, what would you say to them? I would say thank you for the support. I'd like to thank everybody who donated to the Courage Fund for these girls, and uh, all about it, everybody that donated. Parents in general that does have a loved one missing, Please do me one big favor. Count on your neighbors. Don't be afraid to ask for the help. Thank you, everyone, for your love, support, and donations, which helped me build a brand new life. I just want everyone to know I'm doing just fine. Be positive. Learn that it's important to give than to receive. Thank you for all your prayers. I'm looking forward to my brand new life. Thank you. I think that's just unbelievable that they even had the courage to do that. Like, after being held captive for 10 years and having no outside contact with anybody, and to suddenly get on national television, like, yeah, wow. Yeah, it was amazing. And especially so soon after. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. Yeah, I feel like I would not want to be doing that right away. So you heard Gina's father mention the Courage Fund. So the Cleveland Courage Fund was set up to help the women with their transition to independent life. And at the time of the release of the thank you video, it had collected roughly a million and fifty thousand dollars. So they were able to use that money to help return to some sort of quote normalcy and get their lives started again. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's a pretty big number for such a short period of time. So it just shows like how sensationalized this case was and how how much people cared. I feel like it was also super important for Michelle to feel that because Amanda and Gina would have returned to their families and had support and financial support and Michelle likely would have just been left to fend for herself again. Mm -hmm. And the situation that she was in prior to her abduction, I could just imagine that it might spiral back into a situation like that. So during his initial interrogation, Ariel Castro was able to recall all three abductions in detail. 
He told interrogators that they were simply crimes of opportunity and were not planned or premeditated. It's also alleged that Ariel did not have an exit plan and he knew that he would one day be caught. He referred to himself as a sex addict and called himself cold-blooded within the interrogation. Upon further investigation, as Kristen mentioned, police found the suicide note in Ariel's home. And within the note where he claimed that he was sexually abused, he also claimed that he was a sexual predator, and he asked that his money and monetary possessions be given to his three victims if he was caught. So I kind of wondered what this was for, but maybe it was a plan to commit suicide if the police raided the house while he was home. Yeah. Or it was a time where he thought he might commit suicide and decided not to. Maybe that was just his weird fucked up little will that he had. Yeah, very strange. Yeah. After his arrest, Ariel Castro was initially charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape and was put on suicide watch. After learning of what Castro had done, one of his daughters, Angie, described him as, quote, the most evil, vile, demonic criminal, end quote saying, quote, he is dead to me. She said that she used to call him daddy and viewed him as a friendly, caring, doting man, but stated now, quote, there will be no visits, there will be no phone calls, he can never be daddy again. I have no sympathy for the man. I never want to see him again, end quote. So that daughter, Angie, was the one that we just heard from in the interview. Yep. His other daughter, Arlene, also said that she would never speak to him again and that he must suffer the consequences for his crimes. After Ariel was arrested, he indicated that police could have caught him right away if they had been able to look at the surveillance footage from Wilbur Wright Middle School where Gina was kidnapped. Ariel allegedly said in court, quote, If they would have questioned me, it's possible that it would have ended right there. I feel that the FBI let those girls down, end quote. How about you let those girls down, you fucking doofus? Wow. I just can't even believe that he's trying to blame anybody in the situation but himself. Right. That is unbelievable. His lawyers also said that the evidence would show everyone that he wasn't the monster they thought he was. Which, what are you talking about? But the lead prosecutor indicated that the facts show otherwise. He said, quote, you'll make the same logical judgment when you see the facts, end quote, which is very true. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what his lawyers were referring to here. Ariel made his first appearance in court on May 9th, 2013. Bail was set at $8 million, $2 million for each of the four kidnapping charges. It was initially said that prosecutors intended to seek the death penalty against him. At the time, there were alleged charges that were pending, which included attempted murder, assault, and aggravated murder for the violence inflicted against Michelle, which forced her to miscarry her pregnancies. On June 12th, Ariel Castro entered a plea of not guilty. One of his attorneys named Craig Weintraub agreed that some of Castro's charges were indisputable. However, he said, quote, it is our hope that we can continue to work toward a resolution to avoid having an unnecessary trial about aggravated murder and the death penalty, end quote. Adding, quote, we are very sensitive to the emotional strain and impact that a trial would have on the women, their families, and this community, end quote. On July 12th, one month later, Ariel Castro was indicted on the following 997 counts. 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 counts of rape, 7 counts of gross sexual imposition, 
So I looked this up to see what it meant, and it sort of distinguishes itself from rape, where a person touches another in a sexual manner without consent. Six counts of felonious assault, three counts of child endangerment, two counts of aggravated murder, and one count of possession of criminal tools. Nine days later, on July 26th, Ariel Castro pled guilty to 937 of the 977 charges. Through a plea deal, Ariel forfeited his right to appeal and would not be able to profit in any way from his crimes. At this time, counsel representing Amanda Berry, Gina De Jesus, and Michelle Knight released a statement saying that the women were, quote, relieved by today's plea. They are satisfied by this resolution to the case and are looking forward to having these legal proceedings draw to a final close in the near future, end quote. The sentencing hearing occurred on August 1, 2013. Within an evaluation done by Dr. Frank Oshberg, he said, quote, This was not real intimacy. This was a perversion of intimacy, end quote. He described the women's survival and coping mechanisms as, quote, marvelous, compelling examples of resilience, of imagination, of humanity, end quote. The evaluation done by Dr. Oshberg contained statements, medical records, recorded interviews, and transcripts, which were only glimpses of the horrific physical and emotional abuse that the three women suffered during their inhumane captivity by Ariel Castro. Oshberg said, quote, he appeared to be evolving in an ever more dangerous direction, capturing younger and younger women, telling his captives he was hunting for replacements, end quote. A forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Gregory Sathoff, who examined Ariel Castro, was asked if he believed that he suffered from any mental illness, to which the doctor said that Ariel suffered from, quote, no psychiatric illness whatsoever, end quote. The hearing saw testimony from various authorities and mental health experts. Police described how Ariel would throw money at the girls after raping them and would flash a gun at them as a form of control. An officer said that Ariel Castro's actions were to, quote, purely satisfy his sexual needs, end quote, and pointed out that Ariel admitted many times that he knew what he was doing was wrong. An FBI agent named Andrew Burke testified, indicating how Ariel Castro's home was remodeled and manipulated in order to keep the women in captivity. The back door of his home had an alarm system, with sheets and curtains covering windows as well as a porch swing which was blocking off stairs that led to the rooms where the girls were held against their will. One room had a doorknob removed, with a lock installed on the outside of the door, and a hole was cut in the door to improve ventilation because all of the windows were boarded up from the inside. Ariel Castro also made a statement at the sentencing hearing, which was almost 20 minutes in length. Castro's statement would switch quickly from being apologetic to blaming the FBI for not catching him. He would blame the girls, his victims, for getting into a car with a stranger, spoke of whether the victims were virgins, and then would beg for their forgiveness. He even referred to himself as, quote, very emotional, end quote, and a, quote, happy person inside, end quote. Michelle Knight was the only of the three victims to read a statement during the hearing, while the other two women had family members read statements on their behalf. So now I'm going to play a quick clip of Michelle's impact statement. So it's the end of her statement and a little clip of Castro defending his actions. You took 11 years of my life away. And I have got it back. I 
spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all this that happened. But you will face hell for eternity. What I'm trying to get is that these people are trying to paint me as a monster, and I'm not a monster. I'm sick. I mean, I mean, my sexual problems is so bad on my mind that I'm impulsive. Most of the sex that went on in the house, probably all of it, was consensual. This, this, these allegations about being forceful on them, that is totally wrong. Because there was times that they would even ask me for sex, many times. And I learned that these girls were not virgins from their testimony to me. They had multiple partners before me, all three of them. So that is about all that I could muster up to play of him speaking. It's 20 minutes long and it's on YouTube if you're interested in hearing it, but... And he's just continuing to say that it was consensual and he's not a monster and, oh, boo-hoo, I have these sexual problems, oh, I'm such a victim. How are you going to sit there and say that it's consensual when you're literally having sex with girls who are chained up in your house? How is that consensual? And going as far as to say that the girls asked him for sex, I would be so fucking infuriated for him to make something like that up. It's so disgusting. And then to make note of whether they were virgins or not before, what are you trying to prove? What does that have to do with anything? Anything. So within his statement, he also said many other things, but some ones that I pulled out to quote because I couldn't stand to listen to his voice anymore. Quote, there was harmony in that home, end quote. Then he said, quote, I would come home and just be normal, like a normal family, end quote. He claimed that he was not violent, and he said, quote, I simply kept them there without them being able to leave, end quote. Okay. What? I simply kept them there without them being able to leave. So you held them captive. But he said he wasn't violent at all. I'm just shaking my head. Then he said, quote, I act on my sexual instincts because of my sexual addiction, end quote. So he denied ever beating or torturing the women at all. He didn't admit to putting his hands on them once. Nope. He said he was kind to them. And the only thing he did was stop them from leaving. But it was consensual at the same time, which, what? I wonder if he thinks that he can get away with saying that that he never beat or tortured them because i'm wondering if by the time they were found they didn't have any wounds or bruises or like any markings on them at that point so there would be really nothing to be able to prove that part of it Mm -hmm. yeah it could have been a a strategy a defensive strategy but who knows oh my god he he just angers me So now I'm going to play a clip of the judge in the hearing speaking about Ariel Castro. The breadth and the scope of these crimes and the merciless manner in which they were inflicted uh, requires that a maximum sentence on each of those counts be imposed. You really couldn't help this. Essentially, that's what you were saying to the court. Uh, That lack of insight means to me that you are still pose a grave danger to the community if you would receive anything other than a consecutive sentence. If you 
don't deserve to be out in our community. They're too dangerous because you're, in your mind, you're a victim, again, as opposed to those who actually did suffer the victimization. It's always so refreshing to hear proper statements and verdicts actually being read like that. Yeah, when the criminals are actually being called out on what they've done and also being called out for the bullshit that they say in their statement. Mm-hmm. Like, you are not a victim. And the fact that you can even stand there and claim these things makes it so that, like the judge said, the world will never be safe with you in it. Right. So now I'm going to read the judge's final statement at the hearing where he addresses Ariel Castro, but also addresses the girls. So Michelle was the only one to attend the hearing. I don't believe that Amanda nor Gina have seen or faced Ariel since the day that they escaped. Sir, there's no place in the city. There's no place in this country. Indeed, there's no place in this world for those who enslave others, those who sexually assault others, and those who brutalize others. More than 10 years, you have preyed upon three young women who subjected them to harsh and violent conduct. You felt you were dominating them, but you were correct. You could not take away their dignity. Although they suffered terribly in this night, the Jesus and the Spirit did not give up hope. They have persevered. In fact, they prevailed. These remarkable women again have their freedom, which is the most precious aspect of being an American. So, Casper, you forfeited that right. You now become a member with the Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. You will be confined for the remainder of your days. You are hereby remanded for transport to a Wayne Correctional Institution. Now, for this night, Mr. Jesus is very as well as your young daughter. We celebrate their futures. We acknowledge the faithfulness of your families, your friends, and all others in this community who so fervently believe that you are alive. On behalf of the judges and the staff of this court, we wish each of you success and a sense of peace. Ariel Castro was sentenced to life plus an additional 1,000 years for the kidnapping, rape, and imprisonment of Michelle Knight, Gina de Jesus, and Amanda Berry. On September 3, 2013, only one month into his sentence, 53-year-old Ariel Castro was found by prison staff hanging from a bedsheet in his cell at the correctional facility in Orient, Ohio. Upon discovering Castro, the staff attempted CPR until he was taken to hospital in Columbus, where he was ultimately pronounced dead. That fucking bastard. He couldn't handle one month. One month of just being in jail. For what he did to those girls. Where he was fed a meal three times a day. He couldn't stand to look at what he's done and look at himself in the mirror for more than one month without having to hang himself. So he thinks that he can hold these girls captive for a fucking decade. But when he's held accountable and has to do his time, he can't he can't even survive a month. It's I would say shocking, but it's not even shocking. It's absolutely pathetic. And he's a coward. Yeah, Yeah, he's a coward. And it, it just completely takes the justice away he deserves to rot in a prison like he made those girls rot in his prison but he didn't want to do that so he just decides to kill himself the following day the coroner that conducted a preliminary autopsy on ariel castro's body indicated that the cause of death was suicide by hanging 
His body was cremated soon after, although there were no cemeteries who were willing to accept his ashes. Which I don't really blame. What, like, where did they end up, I wonder? I really don't know. I've always found that super interesting because I don't, depending on the severity of the crime, I don't think many criminals' remains are allowed in public cemeteries. It's like a disgrace to the cemetery. As it should be. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where where his remains went, nor do I care. in a pile of shit. (laughs) Yeah. Just over one month later, on October 10th, 2013, a report was released which implied that Ariel Castro's death may have been accidental and occurred due to autoerotic asphyxiation rather than suicide. However, the county coroner who had initially done Ariel Castro's autopsy denied this possibility and indicated that she would stand by her initial ruling of suicide by hanging. Yeah, I highly doubt he was trying to get himself off by choking himself. By hanging himself. Yeah, he clearly was trying to kill himself because he couldn't deal with what he had done. I don't know why this other report assumed that. Maybe they thought because he had this, like, sexual addiction or something. Like, I I don't know, but I, I feel like that's a stretch. Although Ariel was not on suicide watch at the time, due to his notoriety, he was receiving routine check-ins every 30 minutes. And upon further investigation, it was found that two prison guards within the facility had falsified documentation of logs that stated that they had observed and checked on Castro in the hours before he was found dead. So essentially they wrote the logs and said they checked on him, but they didn't. A final report was released on December 3rd, 2013, and the report concluded that, quote, all available evidence pointed to suicide, including a shrine-like arrangement of family pictures and a Bible in Castro's cell, an increasing tone of frustration in his prison journal, and the reality of spending the rest of his life in prison while subject to constant harassment, end quote. This report and the case was reviewed and was found to have the same conclusion. And I would agree. I would assume that he just couldn't face what he did and he couldn't face being alone for the rest of his life and not being able to be a sicko. And he was probably treated horribly in there, as he should have been. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't bear to do it. And unlike how brave and resilient those girls were in the home where they got treated far, far worse and were subject to far worse things than he was. He took the easy way out because mm-hmm. he had, he frankly had nothing to live for. Yeah. He's a piece of shit. He had nobody to support him anymore. Nobody who cared about him mm-hmm. and good for him. Yeah. But I wish, like you said, I wish that he could have spent the rest of his life in jail. Yeah. So this was a little tidbit that I found in my research for this case. So one of Ariel Castro's daughters, Emily, which we mentioned previously, she's currently serving a 25-year sentence for the attempted murder of her own baby in April of 2007. A judge found Emily Castro guilty, but mentally ill, after cutting her 11-month-old daughter four times on the neck. It's alleged that Emily, who was 19 at the time, was upset that her boyfriend and baby's father had left and moved out of their home. So she took the baby into a garage and cut her neck four times with a knife, then cut her own neck and wrists. Officers found Emily covered in mud, water, and blood, and she indicated to police that she had attempted to drown herself in a creek. 
Thankfully, the baby survived. When you told me about this earlier today, that literally made me fucking feel sick. My jaw hit the floor when I came across it. I was searching for something else. Mm. And then I read this headline. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. And I was like, what? Yeah. What a fucking psycho. At her sentencing, Emily Castro said, quote, I don't know how this happened. I want you to know I'm a very good mom, end quote. Anthony Castro, Emily's brother, also spoke and said that his sister was not an animal and that their family had dealt with her mental illness every day. Despite Emily's counsel arguing that she suffered from depression and paranoia, the judge found that Emily Castro still had the ability to know right from wrong, which is just a little addition here. That poor baby. I can't. I know. It is absolutely sickening. Like, I cannot deal with shit like that when it comes to children and babies and a defenseless little baby. What the fuck is wrong with you? I'm so glad that the baby is okay. And I really, really, really hope that they are with a happy, loving family Mm -hmm. and they have no understanding of this happening. Yeah. Wow. So there are quite a few books written about this case. As you can tell by the length of this episode, this is clearly a very well-known story. And the reason it is so well-known is because of how astonishing and insane it is. So Charles Ramsey wrote a book called Dead Giveaway, The Rescue, Hamburgers, White Folks, and Instant Celebrity. What you saw on TV doesn't begin to tell the story. I actually want to read that. I know, I do too. And I love that the title is like... A paragraph. <laughs> yeah, he he literally is like an internet meme. Yeah. Once, if you guys don't know who he is, the minute you see this man's face, you will immediately recognize him because he was turned into a meme. He's just so energetic, and he's just very easy to like. Yeah. Michelle Knight also wrote a book called "Finding Me: A Decade of Darkness: A Life Reclaimed," a memoir of the Cleveland kidnappings. She wrote another one called. Life After Darkness, Finding Healing and Happiness After the Cleveland Kidnappings. There is a book called The Lost Girls that is written about the Cleveland abductions. And finally, Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus wrote a book together called Hope, a Memoir of Survival in Cleveland, which I quoted a couple passages from that book. There is a movie called The Cleveland Abduction, which is a made-for-TV movie by Lifetime, and you can find that on Amazon Prime. You can rent it for, like, five bucks. And if it's something that interests you, obviously it's hard to watch and it's upsetting, but the movie is really well done. Both Mm -hmm. Kristen and I watched it, and the details are very accurate to what actually happened. Yeah, and despite it being a Lifetime movie, because Lifetime movies are typically, like, pretty cheesy with, like, horrible acting, this one's actually good. (laughs) And, yeah, the story is pretty accurately depicted, in my opinion. And the main actress who played Michelle Knight is Taryn Manning, and she is played in Orange is the New Black and a couple other movies. She's a pretty good actor, honestly. She is a really good actor. I feel like she plays the part very well. Yeah. Like you said, it's not a made-for-TV movie in the sense that it's cringy. No. The acting is really good. Yeah, so. they tell the story well. You can also find a picture of Taryn Manning and the real Michelle Knight posing together. See, oh. 
so cute. You wow. can really see how short Michelle Knight is. Yeah. Yeah, she's tiny. Her nickname was Shorty. Yeah. And finally, there is a documentary on Discovery Plus called The Cleveland Kidnappings. And this is very straight and to the point and gives you the main details of the case, which I think is worth the watch too. Mm-hmm. Discovery Plus in general, I feel like is such a good app for true crime things yes they have the best stuff on there so if you don't have it you should subscribe and check it out this yeah. is not sponsored we genuinely yeah like it's, it. it's totally totally worth it like if you like watching true crime stuff on netflix this is like that on crack so yes totally thank us later okay so now we're finally going to talk about where the girls are today So Michelle would move into an assisted living facility before finally moving out into her very own home. As mentioned before, she didn't have a good relationship with her family and doesn't want her mother and her life moving forward. Michelle uses art and animals as her therapy, and she started taking cooking lessons and is working toward a culinary career and has made some new friends, which she calls her chosen family. And I'm just so happy that she feels like she finally can fit in somewhere. Yes. Jeez, can this girl get a break? Yeah. She would later meet Miguel Rodriguez, and the couple would tie the knot on May 6th, 2016. This was the third anniversary of Michelle's escape, and she wanted to take her power back by replacing a bad memory with a good one now. She would change her name to Lily Rose Lee and start a nonprofit organization called Lily's Ray of Hope, which helps women and children of abuse transition their lives. She released two books about her life in captivity and her journey to healing on the outside, like Amanda previously stated. But there was still a piece of Michelle's heart missing. Her son, Joey. Joey was adopted into a foster family at the age of four, and once the family learned about Michelle's discovery, they thought it was best if she didn't re-enter his life. This completely crushed Michelle, but she also understood and she didn't want to disturb his peace, which again, as a mother, I just feel like she's doing the right thing. Yeah, I can totally understand where she's coming from here, but I don't think it would make it hurt any less. No, it's like she's sacrificing her own craving for her son and her own happiness to make sure that he's protected from this mess. Exactly. She wrote a letter to Joey's adoptive parents, and they sent her back photos of him. Joey would have been 14 years old when Michelle was finally found. I just can't imagine seeing a picture of your son at 14 after you've missed 11 years of his life. I don't even know what that looks like or feels like, and I can't even begin to imagine how that feels. Yeah. It just was horror after horror. Mm -hmm. I think that the only solace would be knowing that he is happy. Mm -hmm. That's all you could really take from that. Right. In October of 2021, Michelle shared a message to her long-lost son over Twitter, wishing him a happy birthday. The tweet read, quote, Can't believe he's turning 22. Wherever you are, I hope that all of your dreams are coming true, unquote. Heart-wrenching. Just knowing that she's still like holding out hope that someday he'll reach out to her in his adult life, which I really hope that one day he will do. I was really hoping that you would say that he did. No, he hasn't yet. Yeah, hopefully he does. I mean, that's obviously totally his own choice if he wants to pursue that. But I just feel like it would bring so much closure to Michelle. And she doesn't, you know, they don't need to be 
super close or keeping in touch every day or really in each other's lives much, but just for her to be able to hear from him and hear that he's happy and he's okay would just make such a huge difference in her healing journey. So I hope that there is one point that they're able to connect. Yeah, me too. Big time. So Amanda moved in with her sister and family. She went to visit her mother's grave. And when she got there, she whispered, quote, mommy, I'm home. Literally made me want to cry. It took her a while to get used to being out in public. She was afraid every time she left the house because it felt like she was doing something wrong. At first, she continued to homeschool Jocelyn, but eventually she would enroll Jocelyn in a public school where she started second grade. Amanda was scared Jocelyn would learn who Ariel was through other people, so she explained to her that her father loved her very much, but he did some bad things and that he was no longer alive. Amanda wanted to change the way people looked at missing children, so she began working with the U.S. Marshals Safety Initiatives in Ohio, where she helped locate at least 35 missing and endangered children. She's working as a missing persons advocate at her local news station, Fox 8, and has her own segment called Missing with Amanda Berry, which I think is just amazing. Like, she's now on TV helping other families locate their missing kids. It would probably be so traumatic, too, to have to relive sort of the experience of these things happening. So Mm -hmm. the fact that she's using what she went through to help others is just so... Yeah. Amazing. Both of them. It's amazing. Yeah. She stresses the importance of if you see something, say something, which I agree with. I feel like people need to be reminded of that. If you see something, say something, even if it's the smallest little thing, but you're not quite sure about it, but it's still kind of weird and you have a weird feeling about it. Just say something like even if it doesn't turn out to be anything. The fact that you said something and made somebody else aware can lead. It could change everything in an investigation. Right. So I feel like more people just need to start doing that in in life. I feel like so many more cases could be solved if more people just spoke up. Amanda continues to raise her daughter Jocelyn and is continuing to try to navigate this difficult situation of protecting her from the truth about her father. Gina moved back in with her family. She worked on finishing school and got a job working at a restaurant, which she loved. She was meeting new people and finally enjoying her freedom. She took the money she was awarded and moved her family to a better neighborhood. Gina is also working to help missing children. In 2018, she founded the Cleveland Center for Missing Children and Adults, where she teaches families how to navigate the media and always push for media coverage and their TV interviews in case their family member has a TV somewhere that they can see their loved ones looking for them. Her business is actually located on Seymour Avenue, which I just found crazy. Wow, really? Yeah. These girls are just so brave and in every way and just so resilient. And they're just doing everything they they can to take their power back away from this monster. Yeah, the way that they're able to move forward is just, it's amazing. Yeah. Gina helps dozens of families looking for missing loved ones and celebrates May 6th as her second birthday. In regards to her return to daily life after being held captive, Gina said, quote, I had been gone for nearly a decade. Everything was different. Everyone had touchscreen phones. Cars were different. I was confused at first. I constantly asked for permission to do things like eating or showering because I had been controlled and needed permission for everything. If I was asleep and someone opened the door to look in on me, 
I jumped out of my sleep because Castro would come into my room at night, unquote. You would literally have to relearn how to live after being out of civilization for 10 years. Yeah. The amount of things that would have changed for all of those women and the fact that they went in, like we talked about before, as children and then came out as adults and didn't have a chance to learn and develop properly. Yeah. It must have been so shocking. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. And to have to also try to adjust to not being a prisoner when yeah. you've been a prisoner for 10 years. Yeah. And having freedom to eat and use an actual washroom. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's just crazy the things that most people take completely for granted. So in 2014, Amanda and Gina were invited to visit the White House where they got to meet President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden. They received the Hope Award from the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. So something that we didn't mention, which I'll just throw in here because we're talking about Obama, is that Ariel Castro was extremely racist against black people. He wouldn't let the girls listen to radio stations or watch TV stations with black people on TV. And while they were being held captive, Obama actually won the presidency. Mm. And there was a little tidbit that I read about how excited, I think it was specifically Amanda was, about him winning and Ariel was just infuriated. Mm-hmm. And he was just had this hatred and disgust towards black people, which I didn't think that he could be worse of a person, but here we are. Yeah. He is just scum of the actual earth. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they both were presented an award from Obama, I just hope that he's... He's rolling in his grave somewhere. Yep. Rolling while he rots. <laughs> yeah. Dumbass. Yeah. Without a grave because who the fuck knows where he's at. Yeah. Seriously. But where is he though? Right. Yeah. And I don't know why Amanda wasn't... Or sorry, Michelle wasn't included in this. I don't know if maybe she just was at a different point in her life or... You know, once again, she's being excluded, but I can't see that being the case with like the white host. But for for whatever reason, Michelle was not included. not included in this. Interesting. Yeah. So since being on the outside, Amanda and Gina have become very close. And like Amanda mentioned, they actually went off to write a book together. Like this Amanda mentioned. Yes, like, <laughs> that's probably confusing in our episode, because I'm like, as Amanda previously mentioned... <laughs> Which Amanda? Yeah. It is me. Right, yes. So this dynamic between the three girls is kind of hard for me to understand, because... Obviously, Michelle was there first and she endured most of the abuse and then Amanda and Gina came second. But I think when they first exited the host together, Michelle really wanted to stay in touch with them because that's basically like the only family that she really had was was these girls. Yeah. And from what I understand, Gina didn't want to continue a friendship with Michelle because she just sort of wanted to move on with the rest of her life and not look back, which is understandable. Totally. But then if that were the case... Why is she still in contact with Amanda? Because that doesn't make sense. Right. There is a lot of speculation about the whole dynamic between the three of them. And there are some people who say that it comes down to the way that he pinned them against each other in the house. Mm -hmm. 
which is hard to imagine that it would affect them in the outside world, but you just have no idea what the impact that that could have on someone. Yeah. It could also have been something as simple as they grew closer in the house and they just get along well and have a bond and maybe Michelle doesn't want to continue that part of her life and continue talking about it with them. Who knows? Yeah. But it. I wish I did know. Right. So each of these girls endured the unthinkable but managed to turn it into something that guides them. They continue to be amazing women, each with their own inspiring stories. They had to relearn how to adjust to entering back into society and breaking the psychological trauma they'd endured. Today, Michelle is 41 years old, Amanda is 36, Gina is 32, and Jocelyn is 16. And that is where we will wrap this episode up. And it'll definitely be the longest one yet. Yeah. So we're... It's almost two in the morning, you guys, just in case you're curious. <laughs> we're clocking in at four hours before I edited this. Oh, God. So give me give yeah. me a little bit. Let's give Amanda, like, a fucking round of applause because <laughs> she does all the editing for our podcast and the amount of effort and time that it takes. Like, you're a true warrior oh my god thank you (laughs) yes yeah i'm also we talked about this earlier i'm also very nitpicky with it sounding perfect and cutting out every single time we misspeak Mm -hmm. and i feel like not all podcasts are like that and if it's just part of the natural conversation they might leave it in but that is just not who i am as a person yeah so which i can appreciate that's why it sounds so good because (laughs) you're such a perfectionist thank you and you can't act like you haven't repaid me for my hard work Kristen got me some (laughs) some bomb lash extensions that she has free lash extensions for life now (laughs) for editing the podcast so you can't see them You can't see them because it's a podcast, <laughs> but they look great. Yeah. And everyone else can see them and I can see them and I love them. So yes. yeah, <laughs> it's definitely worth it. The least, the least that I could do. And if you've made it this far, good on ya. Yeah. This is a long one. <laughs> I would assume this one would have to be listened to in many parts. Oh, for sure. But I feel like when we release episodes and it's a little bit longer than we want in between episodes and then the episode is like two, three hours long. It makes it worth it because some podcasts release two-part episodes or three-part episodes or whatever, and that's fine, but we just like to do it all in one shot. Right. And now, hopefully, you guys can have a better grasp on why sometimes it can take us a couple weeks to release new episodes. It's because of the amount of time it takes to research this stuff and like to put together a script and stuff. We really as you can clearly see, don't leave any detail out. Yes. We want to make sure that we're thorough. Yeah. It's not a matter of throwing stuff together. I was saying to my sister today, like, I'm done my part, but I really want to keep reading and researching and reading through those books and listening to other podcasts and making sure that I have everything and I feel comfortable with what I have. Right. Yeah. Because I just want to make sure that I've left no stone unturned. Right. Yeah. And I feel like we've done a good job so far, so. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the research takes a long time, and then recording it takes a while, and we obviously both work. We both have full-time jobs, we both have children, we both have lives, and, you know, 
as of right now, we have no monetary compensation for this. It's essentially just that's why we love to interact with you guys and to receive reviews and messages because that's really why we do it. Mm-hmm. And we know we have quite a few of you who are loyal listeners and we love you so much for that. And that's really why we're keeping on doing what we're doing. And yes. it all helps when you you spread the word and you share the podcast and you write a review. It really is super helpful for us. And maybe one day we will chuck a little ad in here and start to make a little money off of it, which would yeah. be amazing. So if that does happen, we hope that you will appreciate that we're getting a little bit of monetary compensation for the, yes. the work that we put in. Yes, for the labor of love that, yes. that this podcast is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we obviously love doing it. But just like any job, there are parts of it that aren't always super exhilarating. Right. Like sitting at your computer and editing or sometimes when you get to like the research, I really enjoy the research, but when you get to the end of it and you're trying to finalize it and make sure you have it all, it can be a bit stressful. Mm -hmm. We are perfectionists over here. Yes, both of us. So. But yeah. It's uh, It's been a day, and to top off the day that Kristen and I have, we're just here recording until 2 a.m., so yeah, we hope that you enjoy this and enjoyed the episode, even though it was extremely fucked up. Yes, I feel like there was never really a dull moment, though, so... We will be chatting with you soon, and... We'll be thinking about our next episode because that's what happens as soon as we're done. Yeah. So we will let you know what that is and make sure to check out our Instagram at Momicide Podcast. We're going to post the photos that we mentioned. We're going to post some more photos of Ariel Castro's home, which are eerie as fuck. Yeah, to see the conditions that the girls were living in. Mm-hmm. Then we will also post some updates on the next cases that we'll be doing. And you can always chat with us, send us requests. And we appreciate you very much. So thanks so much for listening. And we will see you next time. Yes, we love you guys. See you next time. I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran to a black man's arms. Dad gave away. Dad gave away. My neighbor got big testicles because we see this dude every day. We eat ribs with this dude. But we didn't have a clue that that girl was in that house. She said, please help me get out. Dad gave away.